Hello again, everybody. Good day. Um, welcome back to another Merged Worlds Dungeons and Dragons story campaign podcast thing. <laughs> I appreciate uh, that you are sharing some of your time with me today and giving me the opportunity to tell my story. Uh, whether you're watching or listening to this today or down the road, I appreciate that opportunity. Um, today's a big day because today we start on a new storyline for our characters. The uh, last one finished last week. Um, so I'm excited to step into what is not only the next chapter, but is, is the last chapter that existed from the actual game that was played for Dungeons & Dragons. After this chapter, uh, and a couple little snippets at the end of it, um, I will be entering into new content that I've never told before. Things I've been planning for a very, very long time, where I was going to take this storyline, what's going to happen to the characters, and the next iteration of that, where that campaign is going. I'm pretty excited to finally get to that. A lot of that's been running around in my head for the last seven years without an uh, outlet, so I'm excited to finally share what's been on my mind for so long. But hello, uh, Coding is here. Turtle, Teresa, hello folks. Turtle, good to have you back, but that was a long drive. And hello, Smitty. And anyone else out there who's watching, I appreciate that you come by and that you give this a shot. If you have a good time, remember to click like. If you're new here, please be sure to subscribe. All right. So, of course, we always start with just a brief recap. In the last adventure, um, our heroes were to face the evil Emperor of Oromon, finally, uh, to deal with that threat. Um, they traveled uh, across lands they'd never been to before. Weeks, several months to travel through all that. Uh, meeting new allies and enemies alike, as well as a few mysterious figures, before they finally made it to the Temple of the Gods, a tower of blessed neutral land that was fabled. Where the Emperor was trying to summon the goddess Pandora, whom he served, uh, into physical form, which is technically against the rules. That's what Mercy and Weston were told by the God of Truth. Now, what rules, what rules and why there are rules, they weren't given that information, but something that might come up over time. Who wrote those rules and who enforces them? Facing him and a giant evil black dragon, uh, there was a lot of combat went on, but they ended up being victorious Although they did lose um, one of the Knights of Serenity, unfortunately did not survive the Battle of the Dragon, um, and Tiara Donsbringer, the wife and you could say almost victim of the Emperor, was unfortunately lost as well, as hers was the body that the Emperor was trying to summon the Goddess into. They were able to break the spell and stop that from happening, but not enough to save her life. So finally returning home, bidding farewell to their friend Tobias, who once again returns to the Sands, a place outside of time, um, not knowing whether or not they'll ever meet him again. Um, Mercy, and I didn't mention this because it's something I forgot, and that's why I'm touching on this. 
Before he left, he gave Mercy something. He gave her another one of those little hourglasses. Um, and it was like, he's like, I'm very limited in how often and how much I can get involved because of his rank and his position now. Um, he's not a god or demigod, but he's probably next step to that. In the sands, he's the equivalent of a demigod. But his ability to interact with the outside world is limited because of, again, some rules he can't say. But he does give her one of those little hourglasses and says the same thing as before. If there's ever an extreme emergency and you have to have me, break that and I will come. Release the sands, basically. Hey, Jim, what's up, sir? Just doing a recap. So Mercy ha does not carry that with her. He, she keeps that in her hidden treasure room underneath uh, Serenity Keep, where also there is the mirror that allows them to transport back and forth to Darsh's uh, island, because he has a matching mirror in his hidden treasure room. Are you late? No, I was just doing a recap from last episode. I haven't gotten into anything really new yet. Um, now, one thing I'd mentioned previously with these mirrors that's going to become important is that a person can only pass through a mirror one time in a 30-day period. Once you've gone one way through, you can't return back through for another 30 days. It's not that it can only be... You personally can't. So if I went through there, and a week later Turtle goes through there, he could, because he hasn't been through there in 30 days, I could go back through it. At the end of my 30 days, he'd have to wait for the end of his 30 days. So it's per person. And it's a one-way, not a two-way. You can go one way every 30 days. And that will have something to do, importance, moving forward in some of the story. Maybe not immediately, but it is something I wanted to touch upon. Not immediately, but relatively soon. So the adventure we're going to start today, um, in the characters' lives, were about eight months to a year after the last adventure ended. Um... The youngest of the children, which is Artis, uh, of the children we're aware of. I'm going to touch on that in a minute. Um, Artis, remember, she was born just like three weeks to a month or so after Petal. Uh, both Petal and Artis at this point are less than two years old. They're like one and a half, one and three quarters. So they're still just little toddlers at this point. They're not out running around and talking and wielding weapons or anything. They're still little. Uh, Seraph is, of course, almost five years older than all of them. He's, he's, he's like five or six at this point. Maybe almost close to seven, to be honest. Um, but just kind of giving a touch on the children. So this adventure actually starts on Darsh's island. And I have a, a little chunk of reading for you folks that, to introduce us into the current goings-on. Um, and where everybody is. It's the same thing that I read to them. Uh, this probably took place three weeks after we ended the last adventure in, you know, in our time. Uh, I took a couple of weeks off to write. I think we took a trip. Well, one of us had to take a trip or something, was gone for a few weeks. That gave me a chance to get some stuff ahead. Because back then I was usually only a couple episodes ahead. So I'm going to start reading to you the same thing I read to them. Um, and the opening section is called The Darstopian Games. From all around the southern kingdoms, people have traveled far and wide to gather on the islands of Darsh Fohammer for the first ever Darstopian Games. 
Representatives from all of the kingdoms were there, bringing champions to compete in their name, as well as goods to sell and trade. Besides being an activity to foster friendship between the southern kingdoms, this was also an opportunity for those nations to barter and create new trade relations and opportunities. First from the kingdom of Thorman came Queen Lana Dragonsbane. As one of the smallest of the southern kingdoms, she hoped to use this opportunity to open new trade lines for her people. Uh, you'll remember that her father Thorman is the one city on the other side of the mountains uh, where they had to go to that was being attacked by the undead army way back in the day that was run by um, Michael. Um, and her father was assassinated uh, by Oromon when all that war stuff was going on back when uh, Darsh and them ended up in the arena. Uh, so the daughter ended up becoming the new queen. Uh, let's see. Representing Paxawal were Felix Rumblebellows, head of the Merchants Guild, um, and Brother Bartholomew from the Holy Temple. As one of the largest visiting kingdoms, they had a large presence at the games. Uh, so Brother Felix, or sorry, Felix Rumblebellows is a halfling. I think you can tell that probably by the name. Uh, but he is the head of the Merchants Guild. King Christopher Wormsblood led the group from the kingdom of Arduel. Arduel was a major partner with Darstopia, and as, much, and as such was eager to attend. From the kingdom of Firemoon, the delegation was led by Taboric Stonecrusher. He was accompanied by ambassadors Smallzius Early and Thickaway Tricklebush. There was a smaller group with, they had, theirs was a smaller group with fewer competitors. Hello, Rat. Um, hailing from the Dwarven Kingdom of Corman came Amb Ambassador Jeb Stonebottom, their kingdom's first uh, on their kingdom's first ever newly built ship uh, that Darsh assisted with. The Dwarves were unfamiliar with sea travel, but felt that for purposes such as these, they should have that option. A great elven ship from the Kingdom of Santriel had come, carrying Prince Pontius. The elves were the last to accept the invitation to the games, but the sovereign finally conceded under the urging of his sons. From the Empire of Kronear came Senator Borum and the Minotaur delegation. They had been the first to accept the invitation to the games. The Minotaur nation considered Darshtopia their closest ally and their mediator within the southern kingdoms, and their citizens also could never turn the chance to compete. And lastly was the delegation from the Kingdom of Serenity, led by Queen Mercy and King Ulrich. They were accompanied by many of their friends and citizens. Most of them, with the exception of Mercy, came through the Realm's Gate at Paxwall and then by ship to the islands. High Priestess Artemis and Queen Mercy met them there by way of the secret mirror gates shared between the two locations. So they arrived early. Okay, So they arrived early before anyone else. They'd been there the longest so it, basically, they came early to time it, so when the games were over and it was time to go home, they would once again be able to go through the mirror. Um, let's see. Also attending were many men and women with no kingdom affiliation. Lord Darsh had made it clear that any and all were welcome at the games. Darshtopia was considered a neutral land where all were welcome and protected. Docked nearby was the Kendership, the Cyclone, who had been visiting the port quite often as of late. And there were also four other large ships. Three were curiously brightly decorated, and the fourth was all black. But all of them flew the flag of Montauban's Traveling Circus. It had been a couple weeks since the strange little man had arrived on the island, spouting stories of, great, of his great carnival and requesting uh, to set up during the games. 
After some thought, Darsh agreed and some land had been set aside, where there now stood a great big top tent, surrounded by games, attractions, and vendors. The islands had been painstakingly prepared over the last of the past two years for this event. The third island had been completely set up with a massive arena, chariot track, as well as inns, stores, homes, marketplaces, and anything else the visitors may need. The fourth island was heavily guarded and surrounded by ships. This is an island that they only touched on at one point that I've never really brought up because it hasn't really been important, uh, but you'll see why in a second. That island was populated by a race of great ruby golems that attacked anyone who stepped foot there. Much to Darsh's frustration, he had yet to find a way to clear uh, to deal with them. He had employed mages to try and assist, but their attempts were ineffective. It seemed the island was magically protected that blocked all attempts. So Darshtopia consists of four islands that Darsh has claimed. Um, there's one island that's his private home and home of some of the other people that work with him and live with him. And there's two that are for business and storage and the games and such. And the last one... Anytime anyone tries to go ashore, big, huge, 12-foot ruby golems come out of the trees and just attack. You never see them. They're, you're, they're not noticeable. And the second you get off land, as soon as you're in the water leaving, they just return to the trees and, and stop. But anyone who sets foot on the island, no matter which section of it, and it's a big island, immediately ruby golems will come out. And they are immune to any weapon that they've tried. They've tried magic. The ruby golems just ignore everything. So as long as no one goes on there, they're okay. But if somebody goes there, they will go kill you. I mean, that's the thing. They will kill you and then leave. And the Darsh did lose several people, and several other people have, you know, just over time snuck over there for whatever reason and ended up not surviving. Uh, are you reading from, like, a massive book or something you've written for all these 30 euros? Uh, no. I'm writing from the fifth of six big, thick books that I've been writing in for the last 30 years. I have one more that I'm currently writing in that this one overflows into. Uh, but I'm on my sixth book for this story. Not to mention a couple binders. But I've been writing it a very long time. Um, okay. Montauban's Traveling Circus. This is another one of those little things where the little guy appears, right? He shows up, and he's like, hi! And he's a, he's a little dude. He's human, for all intents and purposes. He looks human. Um, he's got black hair, and he's got the thick mustache you'd expect from a ringmaster. The tall hat. Um, and he shows up, and he, it's just out of nowhere. No one's ever heard of them. He, they've never been anywhere in the southern kingdoms. No, He just appears one day and says, yes, I'm Montauban, and I have a traveling circus. I heard you're running these games. We're traveling as a circus. It would be a wonderful opportunity to be able to, you know, make some money. You'll get a cut of the money. We'll pay you for the opportunity. You know, you get a share of profits, so on and so forth. Um, and it gives us a chance to entertain and make some money as well. And Darsh's like, okay, we'll give it a shot. So and his, he's in a pretty big ship, and it's jet black. It's all black. And it leaves. And when it shows up, it comes with three more that look like they've been decorated by Kender. And that black ship. And this is one of those things that... Uh, immediately, the players were like, who's this guy? What's this a guy about? What's this guy going to do? And I can tell you, he's obviously a plant. He's there for later. 
<laughs> but I'm, I went into a lot of detail explaining him, so the players very quickly realized this guy must be something important somewhere sometime because of the amount of detail that I gave. Uh, but yeah, so that's Montebon. All right. So all told, there were tens of thousands of people on the islands, and Darsh had vastly increased the amount of security. He's wealthy. Darsh, again, remember, of, of everybody... Darsh is probably the wealthiest, with Mercy being second. Mercy being a queen, with taxes and trade and all that stuff. Mercy has had to put a lot more money out dealing with Oramon and things of that nature. Um, Darsh's money has been going into creating business and, and trade with uh, nations no one else had access to yet. So, um, it's going to... You know, he, he's, he's making money faster than anyone else. Uh, so, he has uh, a huge amount of security he's paying for for this. A lot of them are temporary hires and so on and so forth, but he has a lot of people here, vast majority of the Minotaurs, uh, who are not going to take crap. People will behave at his games, or Darsh will take care of it, you know? Hello, Quentin. All right. Finally, the first official day of the games arrived and was kicked off in great splendor with a speech from Darsh and a parade, because everybody loves a parade. There were many games, attractions, and plenty of food located throughout the islands. It's almost like two islands worth of theme park at this point. Darsh, Mercy, Artemis, and Dandy sat together with their spouses, enjoying a nice lunch while their children played at their feet. They were all staying with Darsh in his home on the third island. It was nice to have everyone together again. The children were all growing quickly, and it was important to each of them that their children grow to know each other as friends. And that was an important thing that they, they made clear. We want to make sure there are opportunities where our kids can be together growing up. Now, um, at this point, if you remember, when Darsh left in the last battle, his wife was pregnant. Darsh has a second son. That is, he has, now has three children. He has the twins... The eldest, which was a boy, girl was born second, and then there was the third one, which is now a boy. Um, at this point, that's the only children. Although, you know, Minotaur families are historically large, so would there be more potentially? Very likely. Artis is still the only child of Mercy, and Petal is the only charge, uh, child of Dandy. Seraph is the only child of uh, Artemis. All right. It was nice... I'm oh, sorry, that. Draven is, was sitting back in the shadows, staying out of the tropical sun. He was, he was talking with Tevin and Michael. The three of them had grown quite close and could often be found together. So at this point... <clears throat> I know I'm interrupting myself, but I'm, it's important to know this. At this point um, in their lives, Dandy has started to get over her wanderlust. Uh, wanderlust is something that Kender start to have at a young age, the desire to go out and see the world, the curiosity. But they will very often reach a point when that passes where they're ready to settle down. Dandy is now settled in serenity with their daughter, who she doesn't want to drag all over the world. Her and Michael have their own little place there. Michael is still a hunter. Dandy's still known as a hunter, and very likely, you know, on occasion might even go and do, you know, help with that. But Michael very often leaves town himself uh, to go hunting undead. Uh, it's actually Draven and Tevin who have kind of joined with him, and very often the three of them go out together, all of them having a hatred for undead for different reasons, um, and they work really well together. So they become a really close trio, the three of, three of them. Um, everyone was excited as the games began. The first couple of days went by quickly. The first rounds of the gladiator combat were completed. 
The archery contest on the first day was won by a champion of Santriel, as was the second place. This wasn't much of a surprise, as the elves were favored in the event. The surprise came when the third place was taken by a 15-year-old human boy from Thorman. No, it's not meant to be me. I gave him the name because I really liked the name, <laughs> and I, it's one I used, but he's not me by any means. No, he's way cooler than I'll ever be. Also on the first day was the jousting competition, which was won by a champion of Paxawal. The second day saw the Blades event, which was taken by a champion of Serenity, and the long-distance foot race, which was won by Santriel. Darsh did his best to be visible as much as possible. When he wasn't in meetings or attending events, he was on the streets among the people. He was buying people drinks and snacks for children and doing his best to be a good host and a benevolent host. This is also a huge opportunity for him to increase his business dealings and such. It was late on the second night when he was finally able to start making his way back to his room, because while everyone's staying on the third island, very often Darsh stays on, you know, at night they actually get boated back to his personal home where the most security is. But a lot of times he has an office with a bed kind of thing on the islands where all the games are going on that he can crash at, so he's there first thing in the morning. His wife a lot of times staying there as well. Uh, started making his way back to his room. It was slow going, as it seemed there was always another hand to shake or a well-wisher wanting to buy him a drink. As he finally drew close to his home, he was pretty tipsy, which didn't help his progress. Almost home, he rounded a corner, only to feel something softly bump into him. Looking down, he saw a small person had run into him and fallen down. It was clearly a female, most likely a human or elf, but her head was cloaked and not visible. I'm sorry, my lady. I didn't see you there, he apologized, holding out his huge hand to help her up. Before he could, a young gnomish man appeared and stepped between them, helping her up himself. I'm sorry, sir, said the young man, his wet hair dripping water down his face. We meant no harm. No harm done, my good gnome, Darsh says, smiling, patting him on the head. It's my pleasure to bump into you. Darsh laughed loudly at his own whimsy. Enjoying your time here? Uh, yes, sir, yes, thank you, the gnome replied. It's great, thank you. Quickly, the young gnome began to lead the woman away. Have fun, Darsh called out to the retreating duo. At the last second, the female looked back and Darsh saw her beautiful elven features and her green hair. Huh, said Darsh to himself. Green hair, shilly elves. Turning, he continued to stumble his way back to his waiting bed. Uh, so, there's that. Yes, I am, I am telling a story. That's correct. <laughs> I'm sharing a story that is 30 years in the writing. So I uh, get together every week and we continue the story. <laughs> I never thought I'd hear. <laughs> Pleasure to bump into you. So that's the end of the second night. The third day of the games was a smashing success. Now, real quick, I should step in. Night Slasher, most of it I'm telling from memory, but there are segments that I read to the characters while we were playing D&D that I read to everyone in the exact same way that they got the information. Today is the beginning of a new storyline for them, so it's got a bit longer of an intro to kind of set that place and location to kind of give what's going on. Uh, I've been writing it for 30 years. I ran this campaign across multiple groups, uh for almost 30, a little over 30 years at this point. Um, so yeah, today I'm just a little bit more reading than normal. <clears throat> uh, the third day of the games was a smashing success. Most of the day was taken up by the mage duels, which were an amazing spectacle to behold. Overseen by the Brotherhood of Magic, most of the spectators didn't understand any of the rules, but it didn't matter. The magic spells unleashed were amazing to see. 
The end of the day was completed by the final match of the 5v5 Gladiator event between the Kronear team and the Arduel team. Kronear being the Minotaurs, Arduel being a human uh, kingdom. It was an amazing upset when Arduel took the victory, but both teams left the field together, spending the next several hours buying each other's drinks. The fourth day saw the Stavs event, which was won by a champion of Serenity, and next was the wrestling event, which was won by an unaligned Minotaur. The last event of the day was the final match of the 2v2 Gladiator match. This time it was a Paxual team versus a team from Corman, which is the Dwarven Kingdom. The humans were incredibly skilled, but were clearly no match for the dwarves, who won the match in record time. It was later, uh, it was later this night that Darsh and his friends visited the circus. The show in the tent was simply amazing, with acrobats, animal shows, and clowns. After that, the adults checked out the freak show and saw many oddities and creatures that none of them had ever seen and found overwhelmingly in inter uh, interesting. As they made their way along the midway, Dandy was next to Michael, who was carrying Pedal. Dandy was chomping on a candy apple, watching all the interesting sights, when she stopped suddenly. Her eyes scanned the crowd carefully, as if searching for something. The look of concern on her face worried Michael. Michael's her husband. Something wrong, love? he asked. It took Dandy a moment to answer. I felt something, she said quietly. I don't know what it was. I've never felt anything like that. She took Petal from him and held her close, overcome by the need to protect her. I'd like to go back to the room now, please, she said softly. Her friends had never seen her act like this. Overcome with concern, Darsh hailed a carriage and personally escorted them back to the house. The entire way, Dandy never spoke a word. Um, so, of course, Dandy's a kender who never shuts up. So for Dandy to act that way, it is completely out of character. The fifth day consisted of only two events. The first was the Jungle Obstacle Course. It took the second place winner almost three hours to complete the course. The first place winner had completed it in under an hour. Thickaway Tricklebush proudly wore his gold medallion in the name of Kingdom of Firemoon. Thickaway Tricklebush is also a kender and an ambassador and friend of Rafe Firemoon, and incredibly dexterous he's known that way. The big event of the afternoon was the final singles gladiator event. It had come down to a champion from Serenity and a champion from Kronear. The battle was long and incredible to watch, but in the end it was Kronear that claimed the victory. The sixth day only had one event, the chariot race. One of the main events of the games everyone turned out to watch. The entire race was phenomenal, with several upsets and filled with exciting moments. In the end, though, it was a driver from Paxual who won, followed by Thorman in second and Serenity in third. At last, the final day of the games arrived, and with it came the main event many had been waiting for. The boat race took a good majority of the day, as the ships had to circle all four of the islands. Serenity, Firemoon, and Corman did not have ships in the race, but this event had more neutral competitors than any others. All told, there were 16 ships. So Firemoon and Serenity do not live near the ocean. They're landlocked, so they don't have any form of navy, so they wouldn't have had a ship. Uh, Corman is the Dwarven Kingdom that's just recently come into the fold, and as I mentioned earlier, they just finally built their first ship. They are in no position to try to win a race. But there's a lot of individuals from different kingdoms or living separately who came with their boats because it's a pretty hefty prize and it's a great way of bringing other towns and such which may not be part of the Southern Kingdom's alliance into that fold. 
Surprisingly, the heavily favored ship of Santriel ended up coming in second place. The winner of the race was the Kender ship, the Cyclone. The rest of the day was a massive celebration, an award ceremony. A feeling of friendship and brotherhood emulated from the gathered kingdoms. As Dar stood there overlooking the celebration, surrounded by his friends and loved ones, he couldn't help but smile and be proud of what he had created and of the legacy he could leave his children. So the goal for Darsh here, this is something that, this whole thing was not something that I came up with. It's something that a young lady who played Darsh wanted to do. She came up with that idea. She goes, I'd like to have a big Olympics type kind of thing. And we worked it out where it would be like every six years they would do it. Because it gave opportunity to build more stuff and people to train. We didn't want to do the same as Olympics and do four years. So we went with six. Um, But it was, uh, this was supposed to be the first ever and something that was going to continue. Um... But it was, it was something we planned and what she wanted to have there, and we kind of made all that happen. <coughs> Excuse me. So after this happened, of course, there's a couple of days of celebration, a lot of people hanging out. But with this thing being done, people start heading home, right? The champions have got their prizes, which a lot of that involves uh, sweet little money as well as some type of trophy. Or usually it's like a medal kind of thing that you'd wear. Not to mention just huge bragging rights, Um for the next six years, right? A banner would be hung next to a thing in, in the uh, gladiatorial arena that Darsh had built, showing who won what event in their country's banner. Uh, so that would hang there till the next year until someone else potentially could defeat them. Um, and so it was a big deal. But people do finally start to head out. You know, people get, so a lot of these people are the leaders of their nations. Um, Christopher's the leader of his nation. The Queen of Thorman is there. A um, lot of head people. So, and then Mercy and Ulrich themselves, the king and queen of Serenity, are gone. Seamus was at home taking care of things, as was Quan, who had recently been married. Hmm, interesting indeed. It was also rumored that Quan's wife was currently with child. Rumored, of course. So at this point, the first two nations to leave was Arduel and Santriel. The elves, again, still being not official members of the southern kingdoms, they are now starting to work their way in. Um, They're the last to arrive. The prince wants to get home. He heads out. Uh, Nathaniel, who's the other prince, technically, the youngest, uh, who works for Darsh and lives on his ship, uh, they have some time to kind of hang out because they don't get to see each other a whole lot. but they got to hang out and talk about what was going on there, that kind of thing. Um, Dandy and Michael had a chance to spend some time with Lyman. You'll remember that they had a ship, right? Dandy has a ship, the Miss Dandelion, that was Darsh's original boat. <clears throat> and it's run by Lyman, who is the guy who runs, who, basically the captain of the ship when she's not there. Now that they've lived in, Sant- they've lived in Serenity as long as they have, uh, Dandy basically gave the ship to Lyman. Said, hey, you know what? You guys still want to be hunters. You're a ship full of hunters. Don't wait on me. Here you go. Here's a bunch of money to get you started. And so they stay along the shores, but they they all consider... They spend so much time around Darstopia that many of them consider that home as well. And a lot of them have homes there. So that's kind of the home base of them. So they're very often found here as well. Um, Darsh meets with Marissa. Now, Marissa uh, is one of the head mages 
um, of the Tower of Paxawal. The mages are trying to talk Darsh into letting them build a tower here, just like they did in Serenity. A mage tower presence would be both beneficial uh, for Darsh profit-wise and protection-wise, because, of course, you know, having the mages as your ally is always a great thing. And he is a ways away from everyone else, kind of out in the middle of the ocean on his islands. Um, Mercy, of course, meets with Paxwell and Firemoon. They talk about trading of horses. At this point, Mercy's horses are highly sought after. She's been breeding horses since the beginning of Serenity being built. Um, and she's been doing a good job. So she's now starting to trade in horses that both Firemoon and Paxwell are interested in. Uh, Artemis meets with Brother Bart, of course, for the first time. Technically, they're of equal rank. Artemis, with her own temple now, is the same rank as Brother Bart, someone that very much helped them get started in the very early days of their adventures. And they had a lot of opportunity to explore the island. The second day, when everyone wakes up, they walk up, and the carnival's completely gone. There were no sounds of the tents being taken. The thing was crazy loud while it was being put up, hammering and putting things up. People wake up in the morning, and all there is is just empty land the ships had left in the night, and no one saw them go. Um, I have to stress something here. Um, a message is delivered by one of Darsh's employees. Comes, Jorn, of course, is there. Jorn probably is the one that brings to him. Jorn's his personal assistant. And Jorn says, Sir, uh, a message was left along with several huge chests and bags of loot because it was very profitable and Darsh was supposed to get his, his care. It's like the money has been taken to where Darsh keeps his money, his secret treasure. Um, a lar- along with a note, um, it said, let's see, uh, it said, all, there, he goes, a, a very strange note was left for you, sire. Darsh's like, all right, let me see it. He takes it, unrolls it, and it only says a few words. It says, we did not take them with us. That's all it says on the parchment. We did not take them with us. Darsh is like, took who? I don't understand. Took what? And he's like, was anything missing? And they're looking around like, no, nobody's missing. No one's kidnapped that we know of. There's never been any hurt, any word of trouble of any kind. No one knows what they meant. But there's nothing missing. There's been no theft that they can talk of. It's a very strange note. By the third day, most of the kingdoms were, the rest of the kingdoms were preparing to leave. Uh, no, Dandy's still there. No, all of, all of the heroes and their kids are all still there. Nobody is missing at this point. Um, but by the end, by the third day, most kingdoms are preparing to leave. Coromin had also left, um, which was, of course, our dro- our, uh, our dwarven friends. They're gone. So most everyone's left now. There's just a few Paxawal and Serenity's people who are traveling on the Paxawal ships. Which is the biggest fleet of ships to come. Paxwell's the biggest city out of all of them. Serenity's getting there. Serenity's the same size as Arduel, which was the second largest. It's actually slightly bigger than Firemoon at this point. So everybody's kind of enjoying lunch on the third day. Darsh has already said goodbye to most uh, official people that he's supposed to. He has a chance. He's hanging out with everybody. And they're all just kind of you know having a nice lunch. The kids are around playing and such. Um, it's very, it's very tropical here, so it's very warm, which a lot of them aren't really used to. Uh, Draven's very uncomfortable because the sun, right, he's half vampire, and sun doesn't hurt him, but it does make him weaker and uncomfortable, so he doesn't like it that much. Um, but it's, uh, one of those things they deal with. While they're enjoying this lunch, uh, in, in one, in Darsh's private area, he's got an, a nice little deck 
that's kind of built like the back of a ship that he's overlooking on the hill. He can see all the city beneath him, and they're all having some nice meals. When suddenly, about that time, because it always has to be about that time, someone quickly rushes into the room. It's Jorn and one of Darsh's constables, which is what are some of the people in charge of his security. They come in and let them know that there's a chance they're about to be attacked. Darsh is like, what? What do you mean we're about to be attacked? He says, look at the eyes of the dragons. What's going on here? And the constable lets them know that right now the island is being completely surrounded by elves. Darsh looks up at the ocean and goes, I don't see any ships. He goes, they're not on ships, sir. They're sea elves. And from what our reports are seeing, there are at least several thousand of them encircling the island. Darsh is like, sea elves? There's no any sea elves around here? All right, well, let's deal with it. Okay, and Darsh starts making his way down, of course. And everybody else comes with him. Because, you know, they're homies like that. So Darsh makes his way down to the shore. Um... As they approach the shore, they can see that, again, there's, in fact, several thousand elves encircling the island. Most, Many of them are just kind of just floating there in the water. Some are sitting on the back of big seahorses or manta rays and all the typical type things you'd expect to see in that situation. Um, and near the shore is one relatively large sea elf who states that his name is General Scythus. Scythus had specifically demanded to speak with Darsh by name. By name. Again, Darsh had no idea of any sea elves would know him. He doesn't know any sea elves. Once he arrives, Darsh is like, uh, this is my island. You've, you've asked for me. What's the meaning of this? The sea elf, Scythus, advises them that they are from the distant sea elven king, kingdom of Delvia. Delvia, he says, is several weeks travel away really outside the waters that Darsh and his people normally travel, because it's deeper towards the center of the sea. When I say the southern kingdoms, you have to remember that in the middle of this world, there's a big lake. It's basically an ocean. And it would take you months upon months to cross it. The southern kingdoms are actually at the north end of that, because originally they thought that was the bottom of the world. Before, when the merge first happened, no one knew that there was a whole other section of the world under there that no one had access to. When they unlocked the world, they unlocked two-thirds of the merged worlds that they had no access to before. And so rarely does anyone go south in there because there's nothing in the ocean except for in the very middle of it, a deep hole where water's coming up, not down, and that's the, what feeds the central sea and is the primary source of water on the entire world. So these say they're, they say they're from the uh, southwest, which Darsh would have no reason to go out there. There's really nothing. I'm sure he scouted it a certain distance. There's no islands. There's no nothing of value there. He had no idea there was a sea elven kingdom a couple weeks away. The king or the general advises Darsh that their their princess has been cap, uh, kidnapped by a gnomish villain. A gnome has kidnapped their princess. The Delvians had been searching for her, trying to rescue her, when they discovered the gnome's metal crab device just off Darstopian shores. And these islands were the only places close by 
While the princess could survive in the sea without a problem, the gnome would not have been able to make it far. These islands are the only place that they could have gone. The general demands that the princess be returned to them at once, and the gnome handed over to pay for his crimes. The elves give Darsh 48 hours to find them on the island, and they will return. But until then, they will be nearby. No one should try to leave. A gnome can do that. A gnome can make a metal crab. A tinker gnome. Uh, tinker gnomes are known for literally building machines. Notoriously not working correctly. Um, some worlds, depending on what you're playing in Dungeons & Dragons, some worlds, they're a little more serious than others. In Dragonlance, they uh, always mess things up. Everything they build is more likely to kill them to do what it's actually meant. But in many of the other D&D worlds, their inventions are taken a bit more seriously. And here, they're kind of, uh, kind of that. So, some type of metal crab thing they found him in. There. So, Darsh, of course, is like, well, if they're here, let's try to find him. Darsh has no memory of my pleasure to bump into you at this point. Some's nagging at him, but he's like, I was so drunk, what happened? But uh, they search, of course, everyone. They, they search the island as best that they possibly can in 48 hours. And there's no sign of anyone. Uh, matching the description. There are no CLs and there's no gnome. You know, that's a gnome they didn't already know. I'm sure there's gnomes there, but you know what I mean. Sure enough, 48 hours goes by. Two days. And General Scythus returns. He is enraged to find out that they're no longer on the island. He says, if that's what you're saying is true, and they're not on the island, then the only way they could have escaped would have been on one of your vessels. Because again, no gnome is swimming across the ocean. They threatened to attack at one point to search the island themselves. But while Darsh has already incredibly heightened amount of security there, there's still the nations of Serenity, Paxawal, and several others all hanging out. And the nations are like, no, you're not. The general's even angrier at this point. Again, saying if they're not there, then they must have escaped on one of their vessels. This makes them all conspirators and in league with the gnome. We'll say that he also says that this is, will be considered an act of war. And that until the princess is safely returned, no land dweller is safe within the ocean's reach. The general gets very, very smarmy, like right up in Darsh's face. And he's pretty big for, uh, for an elf, but not to Darsh, right? And reminds him that while well, they may ride the waves, the Delvians are a part of them. And that the sea can be a vengeful mistress. And then they retreat back into their oceans. So, out of nowhere, Darsh gets in trouble. So now there's supposedly some kidnapped elf and a kidnapper gnome. Darsh is starting to have a little bit of recollection, recollections at this point. They're not here. The elves are blaming him and the other land nations and saying it's an act of war. This is the opposite of what Darsh has been trying to do this entire situation. He's been trying to build friendship and allies. <clears throat> this is not going to be good. <clears throat> so it's at this point the other kingdoms immediately get ready to leave. <clears throat> they need to make their way home and make their own. Many, several of these kingdoms are on the shores of the ocean, and they need to make sure that their people are aware that this is potential, because who knows what the elves are going to do and where. Um, 
So Paxiwal, Kroniar, and Firemoon, uh, they all leave at that point. Uh, or no, they all offer they all offer and leave some men in the defense of Darstopia. So those three nations, which all had large groups of people there, left some. Um, but most everyone else returns. Mercy sends majority of Serenity's people um, back on the ships with Paxiwal, leaving some to help with Darst as well, but sending most back. Excuse me. So they get to talking, and of course they, they ask me as a DM, like, what ships have left before this happened, right? Before, because all these ships are leaving now. Who is already gone? And the only ships that had left were a couple of the neutral ships. All right. There's the, uh, and Arduel, Corman, Santriel, and the Carnival. So those are the four. And at this point, Darsh is looking at that note saying, we did not take them with us. And he's like, this has to be referencing that. Right? Like, this little dude who seemed to know too much about Darsh seems to know this is coming and he's gone before anything happens and leaves a note saying, it wasn't us, man. Peace out. You know, it's really always like, we're, we're gone. We didn't take him with us. Don't waste your time. And Darsh believes that. He's like, you know, they didn't have to leave a note. They could have just left and wouldn't have thought anything about it. But he's like, he's like he has a, he has an inkling. I, I don't believe that they went with them. I, I legitimately don't. So he said, that leaves us with the other three. So, Corman, Arduel, and Santriel. Corman, that's the dwarves. The chance the gnome and an elf would take off on a dwarf ship? Probably not as much. That leaves Santriel and Arduel. Arduel is the humans. They're also the closest to Darstopia. Uh, they would take on anyone. Santriel's elves and might give the elf passage, but they're not sure about the, about the gnome. Um... Or how the elves would treat a sea elf versus, you know, just another type of elf. But those are the two they're kind of looking at. So they have to decide, well, we're going to have to go after them. We've got to find wherever these people are. And if, in fact, someone has been kidnapped to make everybody safe, we need to rescue this poor elven princess. So this puts them all in an odd position. Because they're all there with their families. With the threat of war around the islands. Now, normally... The islands is where everybody would hide from all the other stuff that's always happening at Serenity. But in this situation, the trouble's down here in the south. So after a discussion, they decide that they're going to send the children back through the mirror to Serenity. And Darsh is actually going to send his wife and children as well. She's not happy about that. Both she and Sasha, who's Darsh's sister, cousin-in-law, because her cousin Rokar has married her, and their children, he's sending them through to Serenity. He's like, at this point, we think that's for the best. Um, I don't want the kids here in case several thousand elves come rolling up on my island. Uh, second of all, as has to be determined, someone has to go back with the kids. So our main character's spouses are nominated. So Michael, Draven, Ulrich, and Darsh's wife, Sasha, uh, Lyra, and Sasha are going back through. So it's just so that way Dandy, Mercy, and Artemis can stay and help Darsh with his problem. Because Lord knows he's helped them in Serenity more times than they can count. And this is the first time there's been trouble down here in the South. And so they feel kind of, hey, here's a friend, we want to help him anyways. But on top of that, it's like, you know, we kind of owe him and, and his people who've helped many times. So they decide, okay, we're going to send our families through so the kids are safe. So, where was I at there? Hmm. All right. So at this point, yeah, the spouses, of course, are never happy. But at the same time, 
Mercy, Artemis, and Dandy are kind of the adventurers of the group, and they're all adventurers, but they're the more adventurers. So Darsh uh, decides, you know, they, they get, they call in one his boat, his boat being the Chimera, which is the largest boat in anybody's fleet at this point, um, takes them from the one island to the other. It's a very short trip on the Chimera. Um, on the entire trip over, the entire ship ride, which doesn't take but probably 20, 30, the islands are almost visible to each other. They're not that, some of them aren't that far out of eye shot. Darsh's is, is, island is pretty close to one of the islands. The only one that's slightly set aside is the Ruby Golem one. Uh, they start booking it. The whole trip, Dandy is feeling uncomfortable. She's feeling very nervous, like she's being watched. And she really wants to hurry. She's The whole point is that for some reason she's feeling antsy and she doesn't understand it. But every time she moves or thinks, it's like she keeps looking. She's like somebody's watching her. And she doesn't understand what that feeling is. And she's just holding on to Petal, who at this point is, you know, not even two years old. Just a little squirmy kinder kid. Um... And she just wants you know them to hurry. We got to get them back to. I know they'll be safer. I've got to get them back to Serenity. I got to get my daughter and these kids back to Serenity. And again, it makes everybody uncomfortable how weird Dandy is acting because it's very out of character for her. But sure enough, twenty minutes later, they reach the island without issues. Again, Darsh's biggest ship would be the hardest one to attack. That's why they took it. And when they land, Darsh you know takes everybody with him. Sasha and Lyra take a little bit of time to pack up some of their stuff because it wasn't expected. Mercy and them already had all their stuff. They were all planning on leaving within the next day or two to go back through anyways. So for everybody else to go through isn't much of a problem. And Artemis never leaves anywhere without taking the chest of holding with him. That's where they would have carried a lot of their spare clothing supplies anyways. Plus, of course, a barrel of pickled fish, which is imperative to have in every situation. Who knows what kind of food Darsh may have? Minotaurs are weird. Pies, I'm sure. Sure, there were some pies. But they reach the island. <clears throat> Sasha and Lyra pack up their stuff. Darsh and some of the other humans help. They get everything packed up. And they make it their way to the grotto. So in the middle of Darsh's home is a little grotto with a waterfall. The house was built around it. And behind that waterfall is a secret entrance to a secret underground area that Darsh had built. It originally was a secret labyrinth that they discovered. And down in there they found a ship with a pirate lich and they had to destroy him. That's how Darsh found these islands. Well, he's gone and repurposed a lot of this and re got in and removed all the traps and he had dwarves come in, because dwarves are the best, and make it a secret area where he could keep his treasure and a, like a safety bunker or something like that. His family had to be protected, um, as well as all of his treasure. That's where his main treasure room is as well. I have another part to read. <clears throat> I want to say that when I read this, there were some people in my room that freaked the frick out. Darsh leads your group through the halls of his home until you reach the inner grotto. Using his special key, he opens the secret door that leads to his underground labyrinth. Darsh had seen to it that the entire underground had been rebuilt. There were multiple chambers, each with a different purpose, from safe house, emergency storage, supplies, special prisoners, and of course, treasure storage. It is to this room that you are headed, as it contains the magical mirror that allows travel to Serenity. Uh, you may remember that the mirrors just appeared one day. They were a gift from Zoltan, the demigod, who seems to be getting uh, into uh, them into all sorts of trouble. Dandy is almost in a panic 
as the feeling of being watched and follows continues to get stronger. Finally, you arrive and Dar says the magical command words that causes the portal to open. You each say goodbye to your loved ones and your children, and they then begin to pass through the mirror to safely. The last four to go through are Michael, Petal, Draven, and Seraph. As the four take their turn stepping through the mirror, a feeling washes over Dandy unlike anything she has ever felt. A feeling so strong, her heart almost stops. As Draven and Seraph step through the mirror, the last to leave, Dandy manages to turn her back and look through the entrance to the chamber into the shadowy outer hallways. This is how they came in through that hallway. She saw him there, standing, and for the first time in her life, Dandy felt fear. Though she had never seen him before, she knew him immediately. His description burned in his, into her mind. He was barely more than a silhouette in the shadows, dressed in his long black coat. He slowly raised his head, causing the flat, rounded brim of his black hat to rise, revealing a pair of eyes that seemed to glow in the surrounding darkness. His stare made her feel as if he was peeling back her skin, and she was unable to move. His face showed no emotion, but Dandy could sense his anger radiating towards her and her friends. Slowly, he dipped his head again, and then turning, he smoothly stepped back up the hallway and out of view. A couple seconds later, Dandy felt herself released from the magical spell holding her there, able to move once more. Turning, she cried out to her friends. No, Turtle, that was the man in the hat. The man in the hat has only ever appeared one time, years earlier. Artemis had woken up and thought it was Draven standing over the crib of Seraph, who was just a baby, until she realized Draven was in bed next to her. She couldn't move and spelled, and the man in the hat turned, and though his mouth didn't move in her mind, all she heard were the words were, Not yet. And turning, he walked out of the room. She was released from his spell. Whatever spell it was was powerful enough to hold her and Draven at bay. She woke Draven up, and they never saw him again. But in the crib of their son, they found a piece of parchment. And written in blood was the prophecy told about Draven and his family. For the last of your line shall be a great king, for he shall be the child of destiny. And only the blood of his kin can destroy him. That's the only part of the, that's the only part of the prophecy that Draven knows. Um, but it's what caused his brother to wipe out the rest of their family, thinking he, if he was last, he would win. So ever since that day, everybody, but most importantly Draven, has been searching the world for this dude. And every contact, everything they have, has been searching for this dude everywhere. With not a single clue, no one else ever saw him again. No one doubts Artemis, they totally believe her. But this right now, Dandy seeing him standing in the hidden underground that only Darsh can get to, is the second time anyone has ever seen the man in the hat. And the man in the hat uh, is one of my favorite villains I've ever created. But he's there. But he was mostly silhouette in the shadows. Because, you know, it's not all lit up. It's caves and torches and such, right? So you can imagine they've got torches on the wall. He's standing in the shadowy entrance to the room, which means he came in after them. But Dandy felt fear, and that's not something Kender are supposed to be able to do. 
And that's a whole nother problem. Dandy, of course, screams out to her friends what she sees, but it's too late. Dra- What's that? Hey, Draven, sorry about not watching you on Twitch. Oh, no problem, Isix. You're fine. <laughs> no worries, man. Um, but you can imagine Draven just went through. Draven is on the other side of that mirror, mirror raging, furious, because he can't get back through. It's 30 days before he can pass back through again. So Mercy and them could go over there with him, but no one who just went through the mirror can come back. Draven is raging, beating against that mirror, which for the record, he couldn't break if he wanted to. Hey, Patchy. Uh, But yeah, he's very unhappy camper at this moment. Well, at the same time, the feelings Dandy had, as soon as that spell kind of washed away, all the kids are in surrender right now, that whole feeling she had is gone at this point. That whole pressure, that whole creepiness, all of that was going on, gone the second she sees him and he disappears. So, of course, they immediately pursue, right? They all go tearing up up that thing. They all got their weapons on them. doesn't matter where Mercy is in the world. Her weapon automatically teleports to her hand when she wants it. So she goes, they all go just tearing up there. But there's absolutely no sign of him other than two unconscious Minotaur guards. The two Darsh left at the top at the grotto to just basically hang out there until they got back protection. And they're unconscious. When he finally wakes them up, it's clear they've been inspelled in some way. They have no memory of anything. And of course, they're like, we've dishonored, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, no, man, they cast a spell on you. There's nothing you can do about that. There's no injuries. They never got hit. They just passed out. Again, showing how strong this dude's magic is because after that, he somehow got in the door that has a dwarven-built lock and has been inspelled at this point that only Darsh's key is supposed to be able to let him in there. Two people have a key. Darsh and his wife. Oh no, Jorn. There are three of them. Three people had a key. Jorn's the only other one he trusted with it. Lyra has hers with her in Serenity. Darsh has it on her neck. And immediately they go find Jorn. He's like, you mean this one? They're like, yes, that's your key. You didn't take it. You have not been unconscious. So whoever this was somehow had a way of getting around that magical and physical protection that Doris is supposed to do. Doris played a lot of money to make sure nobody could do that, and this dude did. So immediately, of course, they start. They have the island searched. He's got all these people. Now everybody just searched for a sea elf and a gnome. Now we need you to search for a weird-looking human guy with black hair and a black hat. And the whole island again gets searched. No one else saw him. There's no sign of him. There are no boats leaving at this point. He's just gone. So you have to remember that in this storyline, from when he was first shown to when this moment happened, was probably two real years of our lives. Of playing through adventures and pauses between when somebody got married, people moved away for a week or two or went on trips and things. It was probably about two years. And for that two years... I don't think a single session went by that they weren't wondering, is this the one where the guy shows up again? Because, you know, every so often, you know, I would just accidentally text them a picture of him. I'm like, oh, sorry, that's for later. What do you mean that's for later? Because Artemis, the only played Artemis, haunted her freaking dreams. Um, yeah. Oh, Cave says, just describe your Sky Factory. <coughs> Content is amazing. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. I would say that I'm uh, I'm now streaming on uh, Twitch starting this week. Oh, there's the sub. 
<laughs> I'm live. St- I, I live stream uh, on Twitch uh, multiple times a week. Uh, Sky Factory and Minecraft as well. So feel free to swing on by. Links down in the bottom as well. We'd love to have you over there uh, if you'd like to jump in and hang out with us while we're building some stuff. But thanks for finding us. I appreciate it, Cave. Um, so with all this going on, you can imagine how freaked out the young lady playing Artemis was because she has every reason to believe this dude is here to kill her kid. Why he didn't already and just gave her that mental words of not today. Or not yet, is all he said. Sorry, not yet. He never he just it was the words she not actually heard him in her mind. She just sensed that was the message he was giving her. Not yet. And he doesn't ever show any emotion. His face is just stone cold, but there's just this huge amounts of anger that radiates from him. Everybody Dandy just felt the same thing. Just his face showed no emotion, but just the anger and hatred and such that he's feeling in those moments is pretty, pretty harsh. Or that he's giving off is harsh. But of course, they search the island. There's nothing that can be found for the man in the hat. All right, Smitty, have a good one, sir. That can be found about the man in the hat. He's gone. And I've basically just freshly reopened that wound for several young ladies who played Dungeons and Dragons with me. I'd been waiting for that. I'd been saving that bacon. <clears throat> so at this point, without any sign of the man in the hat, they have the more pressing issue of the sea elves. And every moment they waste, this kidnapper gnome, whatever he is, is potentially getting further away. So they had to make a decision. Left on one of four vessels. Arduel, Santriel, Coromin, or one of the neutral Paxawalian ships. So they really don't think it went with the dwarves. <clears throat> so, one second. So, they have to figure out which direction they're going to go. Uh, they can split the ships up. Darsh has several. And he thinks that, while well, Santriel is not probably the one they went, he sends his second ship, the Morgenstern, after Santriel. What's up, Jesse? His primary ship, the Chimera, they decide to go to Arduel. Arduel being a human port city, races of all kinds go through there. It would be very easy for a gnome and a wrapped up sea elf to possibly sneak in or slide through those group of people without being noticed. So they decide to take the big ship and slide there. Now, Darsh brings with him his smage. Smage is short for sea mage, and it is basically mages whose specific profession, their area of expertise, is to work on ships. They're ocean mages. So, um, they, you know, things that speed up ships, protect ships, burn other ships, things that would, spells that would be useful on a boat in the ocean, these are what they specify. And they got some regular spells to them. So they hop on the Chimera, and they decide to go after Arduel. So, the Morgenstern heads out. Um, Lyman and his ship, Dandy... They, they say they're going to stay here where it's safe. They're, they're one of the smaller ships in the area, and they don't want to be out in the ocean caught by the elves. So Lyman, for the time being, him and his crew are going to stay on the ship, which Dandy's much happier to hear. Um, let's see. All right. So they take off after Arduel. So Arduel was one of the first ones to leave, and Arduel's ships are pretty good. So even though they're taking off after them, they're aware Arduel probably is going to make land before they can catch up. Because remember, CL showed up, they searched for two days, they spent another day searching for the man in the hat. They're like four or five days behind at this point. Arduel, even with the speed of the Chimera, is probably not going to catch up before it hits land. Um, 
Now, one thing that they're C mages, and Darsh has two. There are two. One of them is normally on the more. Oh, there's, he has two of them now. There was one. Um, let me grab the name here. Give me a second here. I have it on another page. That's not it. That's not it. Give me just a minute. This is a character they haven't had to deal with very, very much. This is uh, something relatively new. Um, so, one of them is named Morik. So, Morik is the one that's been with Darsh for a long time. Since his very first ship, the Morgenstern, Morik has been his sea mage for a very long time. Uh, there's another one whose name I'll find in a minute, and but Morik is the primary one. He's the main sea mage, and he's brought on a second one because Kamira, Kamira is so big; it was useful. What's up, big guy? So they start booking it to argue well. Um, the one thing that the smages can tell them is what they know of sea elves. They can only be away from the ocean for several days at a time because they just by nature they have to be in ocean water. Every so often. It's, it's a magical thing, it's an elven thing, it's a skin thing. Or they will literally dry up and die. Uh, and just regular, like, bathtubs don't work. It, it's ocean water. It's got to be salt water. And not water you just pour salt into. It's pickier than that. People always try to find loopholes with sea elves. I tell you, it drives me crazy. <laughs> but they say yes. So they're like, okay. So if they are on the ship, and it took a few days to get there, they'd be cutting it close. They, they wouldn't be able to go too far from the shore. And that's good. So they're probably not heading north up to Firemoon. It's that's several weeks travel with no ocean in between, so they're either going east or west. If they go west, they're going to be running into Santriel again, anyways. That's the Elven Kingdom. The the, the elves' uh, woods go all the way to the shore. If they go, that's east. I'm sorry, that's east. If they go west, that's towards Paxiwal, and there's a lot of options there. Um, yes, so they get to the they get to uh, to Arduel. They land, they get there as quickly as they can, and immediately they go to the keep. Uh, Darsh is an ally of King Christopher. If you'll remember, Darsh and their friends are the ones that saved him when his city had been taken over by an evil mage and he'd been locked in the prisons. Basically, he's the one that helped make him a king again. So they're good allies with King Christopher. And so they're like, hey, we need to speak to Christopher. And Christopher's like, man, I just saw you like a week ago at the, at the games. What are you doing here? And he explains what's going on. Arduel, at this point, probably didn't know much about the sea elves, and they're like, oh, okay, well, this is something we need to know, because we live right on the shore. We're an ocean-faring kingdom. That's a large amount of our trade. And so it explains all that kind of stuff. Um, when they get there, let's see... They speak... Captain Christopher says, well, this is the sh these are the captains of our ships. I'm sure most of them are still here. I will escort you. We'll go see if anybody knows the whereabouts of these people you're looking for. So Christopher and the crew go down to the docks and start speaking to the captains of the ship that Christopher knows, including the one Christopher was on. And sure enough, speaking with the dockmaster and the captain, one person remembers seeing at least one nervous young gnome and his guest bought passage on one of the ships. Sure enough, they, there was openings. You know, a lot of people, like I said, stayed behind to keep working on business or, or pack up and such. So not everyone left. There was room on some of the ships. Why not make a few extra coins giving a ride? So a gnome and this guest, he goes, I don't remember. It's just, she was wrapped up in clothing and such. Probably a female. I don't know she's a little bit taller than him. But yeah, they, uh, they had, they passed through. They left the ship as soon as we, as soon as we landed. This is the first clue they've had. They're like, okay, we picked the right direction. 
They didn't go Santriel, and they definitely didn't go to the dwarves. Because he was pretty sure it wasn't the dwarves, but then after a little while he got, what greater place to hide from sea elves than inside an impenetrable underground mountain kingdom of dwarves? Which, true, sea elves aren't going to do a thing to the dwarves, but the sea elf can't get to the ocean under there. She's got to be in the ocean every so often. So the kidnapper couldn't have taken her there. She would have died. What's the whole point? Kidnapping someone if you're not going to get some loot off of them or something. So they're like, okay, we've made the right choice. Now, they don't know which direction they went, but their previous ideas are still sticking. We don't think they would have went to Santriel. We're not sure if the elves would have taken them in, Christopher says. Whichever direction you choose to go, I will send people the opposite direction just in case. They appreciate that. So Christopher's people are going to head towards Santriel. They're now on speaking terms. Let them know what's up and going on. They want to let their elves know there's some sea elves out there with a bad attitude. Darsh and them decide that they're going to go east towards Paxawal. And they have to decide, do we go by boat or do we go on land? Right? So like, okay, which route do we want to do this? If we go by boat, it'll be faster. We could probably catch up. Plus, they can't be that far from the shore. She's got to be in the water every so often. On the second end, she's thinking, well... I'm not sure if there's a delay on that. Hey, Jesse. Jesse Barrows just became a member. Thank you, Jesse. I appreciate that. Jesse has just become a member of the Draven's Dragons membership program here on YouTube. I appreciate that, Jesse. Now, Jesse, if you haven't already, we'd love to have you join our Discord channel. Oh, there it is. <laughs> big delay on the big delay on the uh, Jesse, if you're not, and this of course goes to anybody listening or watching, if you're not yet a member of our Discord, we'd love to have you. If you go to my website, onlydraven.com, there's a button near the top of the homepage you can click on. That'll take you right in. Um, on, your di on your Discord account, make sure that your YouTube account is linked. And then as soon as it is, once you join the Discord, you'll automatically have membership status there as well. As long as you link your YouTube to your Discord, it'll kick in and you'll have all that access. And I appreciate that, Jesse. <laughs> I know you did say that. I appreciate that you did. <laughs> and thank you. We love having you. Now, that means tomorrow night's stream, that's a sp that, that could be a spin in the wheel. Man, that. <laughs> Hello, turtle. It is linked. Excellent. Then you'll be already set. Uh, so they decide they're going to head west towards Paxwell. Do they go by boat or do they go on land? Well, they think they're going to go on land, but they're going to send the ship along the shore watching for any signs of them. So Darsh and our heroes decide that they're going to go by land. Now, they don't have horses. They don't take any horses. Well, did they? They did take horses. I'm a filthy liar. They took horses in the hope of catching up. Fortunately, they're able to find one big enough for Darsh. Ever since the man in the hat spell kind of snapped off Dandy, because she's looking at him, she couldn't move. That's how it was with Artemis. When she's looking at him, she was just frozen until he was gone. Ever since then, she's had no more of those feelings of being watched. All It's been days now. Absolutely none of that. And she doesn't barely remember the fear she had. She only remembers that she felt it. So our heroes start heading towards the west. Now, the gnome and the elf have a head start. Did they get horses? Are they walking? They have no idea. Maybe they got with a caravan. Land travel between Paxawal and Arduel takes a while, but it does happen. Um, and there's a lot of just unaffiliated villages and towns in between there that weren't 
many years ago when the heroes traveled through this area. They're actually not going to be super, super far away from where they came across that Kender village way back in the day, some of you remember. The Kender village that meant Dandy just hate a certain drow elf. And like Draven has been searching for the man in the hat, Dandy has been searching for that drow. For years now, without a single clue. So they're traveling out. They are about, they travel for a couple of days without any signs. Um, they do come across, you know, there's roads here, but they try to stay relatively close to the shore. So a lot of times they're off roads unless they come across, you know, like a small village or town. Because again, you, you can imagine if there are towns along here, being near the shore where fishing and stuff could be, um, would be something that a lot of people would. Hey, excellent, Jesse. We we're glad to have you, sir. So, uh, you can imagine that there's a lot of towns along the shore, right? Where fishing is good, people are going to live for that. That's an easy way to make a living. And take that fish in inland a little bit to some of the towns that aren't this far down. That make a little bit of coin. What's up, Tony? So, they're not, it's not like they're trying to avoid the road. They're just trying to stay within sight of the ocean. And sometimes they're off-road. Sometimes they're back on it. They use it whenever they can because passage and travel is obviously going to be faster even on a dirt road. So they're traveling several days out at this point. It's almost the third day. It's near the middle of the second day. When as they're, they're on in a little area where the road had branched off and gone away from the shore a little bit. So the road they're on now is a little less kept. When they come across a group of halfling men. A group of them. Probably about eight of them. Eight of them, yes. So they come across half eight halfling guys just on the road carrying pitchforks and torches and things. You know, a mob. So it's a very, very small mob. When Darsh and them show up, they come up very quickly and they're like, okay, immediately they're like, do we have to kill halflings? We did not come here to kill halflings. But the halflings come up and immediately ask for help. Let's them know that they're from a very, they're from a, a very nearby village that over the last few days has been plagued by a bunch of Unkheg. That's how I pronounce them. I don't know how you actually spell it. A-N-K-H-E-G. I have always pronounced it Unkheg, but I that could be the wrong word. It's a very classic D&D monster. If I'm saying it wrong, I apologize. But I've never heard it actually spoken. I've just seen it written a thousand times. So an onkeg is basically, imagine a really big, long green bug. Kind of like a praying mantis, but that digs under the ground. Uh, their shells are incredibly hard. They're very hard to hit. And their shells are sought after because it makes incredibly good armor. But over the last few days, it seems that a nest of them has popped up around the village. And the village has been basically infested. And I say that, many people have gone missing. They're already, uh, we're in a big village to begin with. There are some concerns. They're like, you obviously are warriors of a much sturdier, we're just farmers and, 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 and such, we live around here. Is there any way you, have, you can help us? Or at least take word to the king 
King Christopher, these halflings technically are still in Arduel lands, but right outside, like right on the border. If you could take a message to them, we, we don't have a way of getting there. Our heroes are in a pickle. Why? Because their dungeon master is a jerk. And they want to chase after and find this poor kidnapped sea elf, but they can't just leave a village of innocent halfling farmers to be attacked by a nest of 10 to 12 foot tall praying mantis digging bug things. That's just not cool. So of course our heroes have to alter their course and agree to help this group of halflings take care of this Ungheg problem. Again, I don't know the spelling. I'm going to call them praying mantis bug dudes. So they escort the halflings back to their town. The town is named Bumblewood. So Bumblewood is just a small halfling farming community uh, next to a rather large forest. Uh, the road pa- uh, is, is north here, goes through the forest. Um, our heroes were, didn't take the road because, again, they were trying to stay close to the shore. But there's a, a little bit of a rocky area between here and there that's south of the forest. So it makes passage on the shore very hard. So that's why the road goes up and kind of around where it's easier. The halfling village is on kind of a, a plateau where the farmland is really good, so they've never really bothered to move. Uh, they still trade uh, with King Christopher. They'll they'll go to the RUL, you know, once every couple of weeks or once a month and sell crops and goods and stuff and crafts that they put together. But mostly they're just a quiet halfling town that stays to themselves. So several people have been killed by these bugs, and even more are missing. So they clearly believe that there's more than one of these green bug things. And that's unusual because normally you don't find more than just a couple together. Usually one or a mate, you know, a mate something like that. But the, in Bumblewood, they're like, okay, well, we're going to have to help them out. So what they know about these, because our heroes have fought them once a very long time ago. I, I try to bring in new monsters and stuff now and again, but you still have to bring in the classics, right? Because if you don't bring in... It's like, you know, if you're there's goblins all over the place, you're not just going to find goblins once. You're going to find them again. And I've always been a firm believer of, if a hero can level up, so can a goblin. You might find a level 12 goblin warrior. Just because he's a goblin doesn't mean he can't stomp you. He might be out there beating out a lot of good heroes, too. Sometimes heroes lose. That means the goblins get experience points. So they're, they're here at this village. Again, they know the land is pretty fertile, but they're kind of isolated uh, up in this kind of a raised area. So our heroes kind of park their horses in town. There's a little stable they can put it in. There's also a small inn, uh, and I mean that physically. It's a very small inn. Uh, Darsh would have to crawl on his hands and knees to get in there. Uh, so they, our heroes are like, well, if we're here more than a day, I'm going to camp outside. Um, Dandy has no problem getting inside, though. So there's about 27 families to 30 families that live in this area. Uh, again, small inn known as the Smoky Pipe. Uh, and it's a very poor town, so they can't... They're like, we're sorry, we don't have money to really pay you. And our guys are like, we're not worried about that. We just we have a thing we're dealing with, so we want to help you as quickly as we can, but we want to make sure everybody's safe. So they have to start looking for these. Now, young eggs a lot of times will leave a hole where they come out of the ground. But when they burrow down the hole, a lot of times they're going to get filled with dirt. So it's not like you can just jump in one of their holes and walk around. A dwarf might. A dwarf might be able to dig and say, okay, the dirt's softer on this side, so I'm going to be able to go that way, right? Um, But it's not... Everybody else can't. Jesse says, my biggest problem with playing with my group, they like to metagame. Yeah. Yeah. Understandable. I, uh... 
I don't let that happen. Yeah, metagaming or power gaming or min-maxing, I those are not the people that I choose to play with. If somebody starts acting that way in a group, I replace them. If we're not having fun, I'm not going to let a group get ruined because one person wants to be a jerk. So, uh, if that means they're upset at me because I kick them out of the group, sometimes that has to happen. So, take it serious, right? But have fun. So, they're in Bumblewood, and they're there for a good day. They spend the night, basically, because I said it was you know, later in the day. Uh, there's no attacks that night. They don't have any issues. But the next day, they have to start searching. So they're trying to find a way to track these things. And they're not having a lot of luck. You know, because they're not sure what they're looking for. The few times they've had to fight these creatures, they literally popped out of the ground. Because they're very quiet. They'll lay under the ground and then just pop up and grab you. So they're waiting for that, but there's nothing like that happening at this point. Uh, granted, with a bunch of little halflings around, a big minotaur, while it may seem to be a nicer meal, uh, might be a little bit more than they want to bite off at that point, especially when they're walking around with weapons and such. So they're being very careful. They decide they're going to search around uh, the outskirts of town because nobody in town has seen anything other than the ones that have popped up at rare situations and grabbed people or killed a person. So they decide they're going to start looking around outside of the town. And it takes them a good two-thirds of the day before they find what they can only assume is an entrance. They find a, a tunnel into the side of a hill that goes down in pretty deep. It's really large. Like, Darsh could walk through this comfortably. And it looks relatively fresh. Like, it doesn't have the signs of, like, rock or whatever. It looks like it's been dug at least within the past, you know, couple months. And like, that's definitely bigger than what we're looking for, but maybe they've made it wider because there are a bunch of them coming through. We're not sure. So we're going to... They're like, well, we'll go give that a shot. We'll try to go in there first because it's the only thing that they found. Now, if you'll remember, in this group, three of them have Infravision. Darsh, Dandy, and Artemis. Darsh and Dandy's is okay. They can see about 30 feet. 30 to 45 feet. Um, Artemis can see a good 120 feet. Artemis's elves have the best infravision. But in this situation, the actual person with the best vision is Mercy. Because remember, while Mercy may wear her crown from time to time, underneath of that is always a small silver circlet with a gem in the center that's a red ruby that whenever she's wearing it, she can see in the dark just as well as she could see in the day. So 120 feet's good, but you give across the valley, she's going to see it because she's not looking for heat or anything of that nature. Um, now, much like the modern version of Dungeons & Dragons, where you have dark sight, where instead of using heat infravision, you can just see kind of like I just described anyways. That's how everybody's works. I'm still adjusting to that in modern D&D. &D. Um, and back in this time period, when I played, it wasn't like that. They had heat vision, much predator vision, looking for stuff like that. But Mercy only sees in black and white when it's dark as well. So color doesn't work, but she can read pretty fine. Right, dark vision is what it's called now. Back then it was called infravision. So I don't know if, if infravision even still exists in current D&D. Everybody I talk to only knows about dark vision. So what you're going to do. So they find this and they start making their way in. Um, very, very, very soon they realize they're on the right path. Uh, did I say dark sight? Okay, dark vision. Yeah, I don't. Still trying to learn all the modern D&D &D stuff. I've been running and playing 2nd edition my entire life, pretty much. 
dabbled with first and then moved to second almost immediately. So, they, uh, they start finding signs. Uh, and those signs are leftovers. They will find an- small pieces of animal carcasses, uh, you know, poop. I mean, they're going to find, these, these are big creatures, they leave big piles. And occasionally they'll come across a foot or a finger or something that lets them know that something big has taken something small and eaten most of it. Um, so there's that. These things will eat bones. They just crunch them away. They don't care. So they're di- they're not they don't have to dig. It's spacious. Sometimes it gets a little more narrow, but Darsh is still pretty comfortably able to walk around, which is a lot when you're a minotaur with your horns. It's a twisting series of tunnels and chambers deep within the earth. Um, I think I might have had the map for that, if I remember correctly. I do have the map for that. Give me a second. I'll show you the map for that. Here's the map that I drew for this. So it's a twisting paths of chambers and paths is all underground. Okay. It's crazy because I've been for the last two months I've been trying to remember what the heck that map was, and right now I just realized what it is. It was PDF. You buy them? I've thought about that. I thought about making my own Merged Worlds D&D kind of stuff and, and putting them out for people to play. I, I, Merged Worlds is a lot of fun. People seem to enjoy it. Maybe one day, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, uh, now you've intrigued me. I've got to think about that. Uh, so, they're going through these tunnels. They ended up running across multiple of our bug friends. And so there were multiple battles going on in here. They really don't find any treasure. These things are animals, basically. They're not human intelligence. Uh, so they just eat everything. You know, They're not gathering treasure or loot. They could care nothing about that. They are, in fact, just really big insects. Um, so they're, they don't come across any other than the occasional coin on the ground that might have fallen out of somebody's bed. They're not going to find any actual treasure. There's no magic items in here. Nothing along those natures. But they do end up fighting several of these creatures. I think they end up fighting eight of them. Um, They fight eight of them at this point. Love it if I do. I appreciate that. (laughs) Maybe Maybe I'll think about putting together a merged worlds one. See if anybody's interested in it. Lord knows they can go back and watch the hundred plus hours of this and learn a whole bunch about the world. <laughs> um, so, as they're going through all of this, again, it's uh, it, it seems like almost miles is what it feels like that they're walking around underneath this thing. Uh, and they have to fight several of the big creatures. Now, as they're going through here, they do occasionally find bodies. Halfling bodies or parts of halfling bodies. Throughout the whole thing, they actually come across because uh, I was going to say there were 11 missing people, I think I said. I think it was 11 missing people. Um, they actually find two survivors in here. Very injured. Very injured. In fact, Artemis had to use some relatively powerful healing spells to save them. I mean, it's not like I did that on purpose to make them run out of spells or anything. But they use some of their powerful spells to save these halflings. Um, and then basically hide them. They're like, you stay here till we come back. Because if you go wandering around, one of these things is just going to eat you anyways. So, like, find a small cave and barricade it or something like that. If I remember correctly, that's what they did. They found some rocks and 
staff and big piece of bone and then kind of hid the halflings behind it. I take that back. No, they didn't. They put them in the chest of holding. That's what they did. They opened up the chest of holding and they put them down inside of it. I remember now. So like, you're okay in there for a while. Two little halflings aren't going to use a ton of air. We'll open it up every 30 minutes to an hour and you'll be fine. Um, oh, no, I mean, Jesse, I mean, for those people who wanted to research the world the adventures would be placed in, I'm saying there's a lot of source material if somebody wanted to go back and find out more about the world if they wanted to do that kind of thing. Yeah, I wouldn't say go back and write it yourself. I just meant if people want to research the backstory. Um, they find two people barely alive. They're able to save them. No loot. They do find one ring. It's not magical. Probably just somebody's heirloom. They do take that with them. So, as they're going through, they start to notice that the tunnel is starting to get bigger. And this begins to make them nervous. These bug things are big, but they're not this big. Why is this like this? And they're not sure. So they're very on edge. Weapons out, ready to go. Uh, they like to always tell me that they're con no, they're going... Uh, Carefully, quietly, and prepared for everything. That's, that's what they said every time. We're going carefully, quietly, and prepared for everything. That's their way of trying to say nothing can, nothing can get the surprise on us because we're prepared for everything. That's not how surprise works. I still get to jump on them from time to time. This situation, it was not that concerned because when they walk into the chamber of the hive mother, she's a little bit too big to get out of here at this point. It was not a surprise. They find the Hive Mother in a huge room. Uh, where'd it go? Here. Yes. So they find the Hive Mother, and she's huge, over 60 feet tall. Never has anyone seen a creature this big of this type of creature. There's dragons and such. But no one's ever seen an Ankeg this large. And as I mentioned, their armor, incredibly strong. They have like a carapace. It's like a bug. They've got that shell all over their, over their body. And so regular weapons don't work. Even magical weapons have got to have quite a bit of mojo to break through there. So they have no choice but to fight the Hive Mother. So the Hive Mother has a couple attacks. Uh, she has a bite claw claw attack. Um, and once every five rounds has the ability to spit an acidic-like uh, substance, which only hurts. It won't melt your body. But it's also very sticky. So it causes some damage and gives you negatives to movement and attack because you're, in fact, sticking to things, uh, making it easier to get you. Um, there are also what could only be described as several large egg sacs in this room, probably seven or eight of those. Um, and every four rounds of combat, due to the noise, another Ankh egg or two shows up. So every four rounds, as long as she's alive, I'm going to roll a two-sided and see how many show up. Now they have to fight those as well as her. So this fight lasted a while and more kept popping up. Uh, and so that, that became, they, it took them a couple things of, okay, every four rounds we see him roll a dice and one or two more roll in. So we're, we're, we're having to prepare for that. So Darsh and uh, Dandy are taking are, are fighting the hive mother at this point plus mercy as well but mercy is the one who's falling back trying to take care of any of them that are sneaking up behind because while these things are armored and such 
her weapon being a blunt weapon, because she uses a Morningstar, actually works a little bit better than the bladed weapons. The blades don't really cut the shell, but her Morningstar is strong enough that it can crack it and do damage underneath. Um, and she's pretty... She's pretty boss at this point. Like, Mercy, when this rolls around, these guys are right, like I said, they're around 13th and 14th level. These guys have been playing for a while. So they've got some serious damage-making capabilities. And, I mean, they're head-to-toe magical stuff. And while none of the magical stuff is like an instant win, it's enough stuff that together really gives them an edge. Which, as a DM, I've created my own problem. That's a big problem for Dungeon Masters. You want your people to get cool things. You want them to to have that, right? You want them to have the fun of magic item, but the more that times you do that, the harder you make it to give things that are going to challenge them. You know what I mean? There's things that are going to be harder to provide that. So I want to make sure that um, I give them magic items, but it's important to me that when I give magic items, I make sure that there's a good mix of limitations. Here's a wand that can't be recharged. Here's a potion you can only drink once. Here's a ring that only can have three charges on it. Things of that nature. So they have some really cool stuff, but they don't want to use it all the time because they don't know when the best time is. So I try to make sure that uh, they get a good mix of things that they get to keep forever. Things like, like a magical weapon that really, really works. Or that their gear has limited uses or long cooldowns. Uh, I'm, I have a habit of giving a lot of custom magic items and artifacts. Um, because I like to give them that list of limitations, but with equal enough abilities. Where it's like, okay, it's got a limitation, but it's so cool, I've got to use this. I've got to carry it. I know I can only use it once a day, but this is too cool not to use once a day. I want someone to enjoy that, using that, but being careful to save it for when the best need was. And I appreciate that, Jesse, I do. <laughs> so... uh so that's how this fight sequence starts. They're fighting her. She's got a claw, claw, bite. Claw, claw. Claw, claw, bite. Acid. So that's kind of her shot. When she's doing the acid, she has to rear back and use it. She can't claw attack at the same time. So she doesn't always use it on the fourth round, but she can use it after the fourth round. It takes four rounds for enough to build up for her to spit it out again. Uh, so they, she doesn't always do it on the fourth round. She does it when it's smart. She's not, again, she's still an insect, but she's smart enough to know when to use it. So it's not like every fourth round they just stand behind their shields. They have to be careful. Um, someone said, what's the hive mother? So it's it's just like the Onkegs, it's just a huge one. It's a giant praying mantis-like creature. The top half of it would be praying mantis-like, but then it's a lot longer, almost almost a little bit more worm or uh, centipede-like with, with four or six uh pairs of smaller legs on the back so the big ones are big honking praying mantis things and that's what dig through the dirt and they can go very fast and because of how hard their claws and armor is they can go through stone at a steady pace as well Uh, but they'll dig through the dirt when pulling the rest of their longer body along but the six legs are always usually can grab onto things and pull it back under the ground pretty quickly so they'll pop up grab things pull it underground and then eat it and digest it where the things are less likely to get away. Uh, and the, the claws are they're sharp, of course. It's like a, a long blade underneath of it that they dig through. So the Hive Mother is just a big, slightly bloated version of that because uh, she's heavy with eggs right now. So um, that also means there are opportunities, right? So my players, over time, get to, get to recognizing when I'm being descriptive for a reason. And they're trying to put that two to two together. 
multiple times when I've been talking to you guys, I've mentioned how strong the armor is and how it's really used for or their, their, their shells for armor. It's hard. It's not bendable. But then I mention this thing is bloated with child, with, with eggs. Well, if the shell doesn't bend and you've bloated, that means there now has to be spaces between the shell. And they thought of that. They realized that what I, and I'm, I'm giving that description to see if they figure it out. And they're like, well, wait a minute. You said they're bloated? Yeah. The shells aren't soft, right? No, they're hard. They're almost, your morning stars can crack it, but it's not easy. She goes, well, if it's, there's got to be space in between. I'm like, yeah, there's some space in between. And they're all like, light bulb, we want to start targeting that. And that's when they really started to do some damage to it. Um, because, you know, they, they didn't know what the weaknesses are of something like this. They'd never fought anything like that before of this size. So once they start looking for those clues, because I try not to hand it on a silver platter, but I want to make sure they've got enough stuff, enough information, like... They obviously can't see it. If someone's like, well, I can see this much skin. I just stab there. I got to let them figure that out. Too many questions, but I don't want to stop the story. <laughs> You're fine, Jesse. I like the questions. And, and I always leave a few minutes at the end to ask some if you have some more. So we usually take a five or ten minutes at the end if you have some questions. Keep track of them. Or in the Discord, there is a Merged Worlds thread. You're always welcome to come in there, throw questions at me, and I'll answer them as soon as I can, as long as it doesn't give away anything in the story. But they're fighting this thing, and that's when things really started to work for them. So at this point, Darsh and Dandy do what Darsh and Dandy do best. Darsh goes a little crazy and starts whipping out every extra attack and stuff he can. When he does that, of course, the creature targets him. Dandy then does her best to get behind the thing, which she successfully does. I've stressed many, many times, Dandy's backstab ability is when she can do the most amount of damage. She has some pretty powerful daggers. That's what she collects. Artemis collects rings. Mercy and Darsh collect weapons and armor. But Dandy's things is daggers. She's got some pretty powerful daggers at this point. And if she gets behind it, and she knows now to look for spots between the shell, she's able to, she was able to get a couple good backstabs in that did some serious damage. Making the thing trying to get her, which just opens it up easier for Darsh to attack from the front. So, um, I've never done it. No, Brad. Uh, so that they ended up defeating the thing, but I think they ended up fighting seven more of the smaller ones during that fight. Mercy had to fight a lot of them, and a couple times Dandy had to help, but at the end, Mercy was fighting two of those while Darsh and Dandy finally beat the Hive Mother. Um, when they did, the two that were fighting Mercy took off. They left. Um... As soon as the Hive Mother left, they all the rest of the ones that are in the area fled. So they didn't hunt them down and kill them all. They just leave this area completely. So I can say that the Halflings were never bothered with them again. Um, of course, they're smart enough that once the Hive Mother is dead, they made a point of destroying every single egg sack in that room. Because the last thing you want is another Hive Mother popping out all by itself, Right? So again, this is not a situation where they found any real treasure or loot. Definitely got some cool experience for this, and they got to have a fun adventure. Um, but they didn't get any loot out of this. But these guys aren't really loot-heavy at this point. It's not what they're searching for. Um, they've got so much stuff, they're not worried about that. So they were able to defeat the Hive Mother and scare off the rest of the Yonkei. 
So after this, they, they do spend a little while searching the tunnels to see if they can find any more, because it takes them a little bit of searching to realize they've all left, right? They don't know that until they've looked. They search for a few hours and don't see any more. Uh, so they make their way back to the halflings, or, or no, the halflings which are in the chest hole, and they pop them out, look at them and say, hey guys, we're taking you home now. I mean, they had to grow it up to do that, but you know what I'm saying. And they take the halflings home. Um, do you use variant encumbrance? I don't know the term. I know what encumbrance is. I use common sense encumbrance. Common sense encumbrance. Three swords. Okay, that's uncomfortable. No, you're not carrying an anvil. Common sense encumbrance. <laughs> you know. So, uh, uh, yeah. So, there we go. So, they return back to Bumblewood where they meet with Mayor uh, Darby O'Finnegan, and that's the mayor who uh, sent them on this quest, basically. Uh, he's the, also the owner of the uh, Smoky Pipe, which is the inn. Uh, they're very sad to hear about all the... because there were no other survivors they found, uh, the, about all the other halflings that passed away. Uh, they lost like nine of them, I believe was my number. Uh, but they are very happy that they managed to take care of the threat and spring home the two that they could. Um, and then the, the ring, which was an heirloom to some lady. She's very sad. There was some crying, but she thanked them for bringing back the ring. Um, uh, so they don't have much to give. They do offer them like several bushels of food and things. And, you know, they're traveling. They'll take some apples and whatever now and again. Put them down there next to the pickled fish. Um, and while talking to them, they're like, yes, now we have to continue our quest. And like, oh, what quest is this? Like, well... We're searching for a gnome and a sea elf. And one of the farmers is like, I saw them. <laughs> and Tarzan, I'm like, what? He goes, yeah, just a day or so before you guys showed up, you know, a day and a half ago. They were looking for some supplies. Had a few coins. I sold them some fish I'd caught that morning. And, you know, they were heading uh, along, you know, just offshore. Darcy and them were like, gotta go. <laughs> and they take off. And they can start traveling through the night at this point. They're, they're, they, they now know that they're going the right direction. So, um, they are busting time. It takes them another two days before anything else happens. Right? After two days, in the middle of the day, I read this. You are traveling at a steady pace through a wooded area. Not far as the ocean, you can hear the waves through the trees. It's been two days since you left Bumblewood, and the tracker you're tracking... Once again, uh, you, you have your quarry's trail. Suddenly, a woman's scream breaks the silence. You can tell it's not far and coming from the direction of the seas. So, of course, they're like, well, we want to go that way. I'm like, well, your horses are going to have a hard time. They're like, we get off the horses. Horses, you're free. And then they go running in kind of thing, right? So they go running down to the sea. You move quickly through the trees, and in moments you are on the beach. Up ahead, a strange sight surprises you. It seems like the water itself has risen and formed into a huge 16-foot humanoid shape. Fighting it is a small gnome who appears to be trying to keep it away from an elven female hiding behind him. It takes you only seconds to realize the gnome is no match for the water elemental. So here's this 16-foot water elemental attacking a gnome, and he's trying to protect or keep it away from this little elf lady behind him. Our heroes go charging in. Specifically Darsh. You remember Darsh has his boots of charging. Boots of charging. Once every... I can't remember how many rounds. I'd have to look it up. He can burst ahead in a 50... I believe it's 50 feet. Uh, he can pass 50 feet in one round. Which is incredibly fast. But he has to make a dexterity check. 
because he's going so fast, if he trips over something, he becomes a projectile, and he will fall on his face. But he was successful in this situation and charges right in, basically knocking the gnome out of the way and taking on the water elemental. That gave, He ends up with one or two rounds of attack before everybody else shows up. So they're going at the water elemental. Water elementals are an interesting thing to fight. They have to be hit at least by a weapon of plus two or better. Um, and uh, they heal with access to the water. So you have to do not just damage, you have to do burst damage. Explain what that means. So damage is hurting something. AoE damage is area of effect. That's a fireball. Burns everything in an area. Burst damage means doing a large amount of damage in a small amount of time. If you do burst damage, you do too much damage for the thing to be able to heal itself or repair itself. Um, so a lot of creatures that have a regeneration ability, um, if you can do enough damage, they can't heal enough to keep fighting you. They either have to flee or you'll have a chance to kill them. So in this situation, it was about doing burst damage. And they realized that pretty quickly as the thing, they're hitting it and the water goes back. So they whip out some of their abilities. Um, at this point, Artemis had a magic item that was a rod of... Yeah, it was a rod of rock and stone that gave her the ability with charges, limited amount of charges, like I talked about earlier, a non-rechargeable magic item, that she can literally take earth and move it. Almost like a wand, almost like the earth bending thing from the Avatar show back in the day. Like she can take earth and with charges she can make a wall out of it, she can move some things, and she uses it very sparingly. It only has so many charges when they found it, and it's not rechargeable. But in this situation, she starts throwing earth, she's raising up the earth behind the water elemental, cutting it off from the ocean, which was a really cool idea I hadn't expected. I knew they had that item, but they hadn't used it in so long it never crossed my mind that they would think to use it in that situation. So it was a very good use of magic items, and I liked that. I'll reward that, a player for finding a cool way to do something in a heartbeat. Especially if they get around something I put out because I don't think of a cool way to do it. That's great on the player's part. So they went ahead and they whipped up this thing. Now the water elemental's cut off. Darsh and Mercy are just doing burst and dandy a little bit. Burst damage as much as they can. And sure enough, they basically explode the water elemental. They destroy it. Um, which water elementals are technically summonings from the plane of water anyways. So you don't kill a water elemental. You just send it home. And that's just kind of how that works. Either it goes back to the water and heals if possible, or it ends up returning back to the plane of which it was summoned from. Same with every other elemental. They're actually beings from another plane that are summoned in. I'm sure you all already knew that. So they're able to save the gnome and the elf. As they're saving them, the gnome and the elf are trying to sneak out. And our guys are like, they turn around and everybody's got their weapons and armors out. And they're looking at the gnome and the elf. The gnome and the elf look at each other. Like, <laughs> that's, that's how I describe them. They put them like, please don't. No. And so they're like, we were, they're like, we've been told that you kidnapped her. <laughs> and now your kingdom is angry at every other kingdom claiming war if we don't deliver the two of you back. The young female elf, of, of course, immediately states, he never kidnapped me. He's helping me escape. 
And so it was at this point that I got to share with them the story of Gipper and Nyla. So Gipper is a young tinker gnome who's always been fascinated with the ocean. He spent most of his life trying to find a way to explore its depths. Now, when I say a young tinker gnome, he's probably in his 70s or 80s at this point. After many failed attempts, he finally created a mechanical crab capable of carrying him to the ocean floor. It had limited air supplies, so trips had to be very short, uh, but it allowed him to really see the water underneath the water in ways most people never get a chance to. Um, He got to go down and see fish how they live and coral and all that kind of stuff, and he had a really, really enjoyable time. It was on one of these trips that, sadly, tragedy struck. A hurricane, which is wont to happen in the ocean, right? Hurricanes happen. Uh, he, it looked stormy, but he didn't really pay any attention to it. Hurricane pops up. The wind is so strong, it's whipping the water around. A strong current grabs his mechanical crab and pulls it deep out to sea. So it got caught in this current and is being pulled out. He has no control. He's being tossed around inside of this thing, hoping he doesn't drown. Gipper, thank you, Jesse. <laughs> I take great pride in my names. <laughs> so, uh, um, yes. So he gets tossed around. And he gets bonked a little bit, and he's kind of un- he gets knocked out. When he comes to, uh, he sees that finally his crab is settled. It's sitting on the ground, a little bit sideways, on the bottom of the ocean. It's relatively dark outside. So it's dark enough that there's the tiniest bit of light. He can see out a little bit, but not more than just a couple of feet. And some of that is from the light that's coming through. He does have one big window. It's like a cyclops crab. There's one window that he can look out of that's about this big. It's no bigger than that. Even he would have a hard time squeezing through it. It... When he wakes to find out that it's damaged, it's no longer working. It's not responding to any of his controls. So he's just stuck down there. He's tried to fix what he can, but nothing seems to work. Sadly, running out of air and little supplies, there's not much that he could do but sit and wait to die. That's very depressing, but you know, just give me a minute. It wasn't very long after that that he heard a strange sound. It sounded like something tapping against the shell of his ship. Uh, why don't we stream to give you watch time? Oh, I appreciate that, Jonas. Here's tapping on the outside of the sh- of his, I'm going to say of his crab. We'll call it his crab. Looking through his observation window, he was surprised to find a blue-skinned elf. The elf seemed very curious. Over then, over the next few minutes, Gipper was able to kind of explain his plight through pantomime and motions. Like, <laughs> you can make sure a gnome trying to explain it. The elf's like, hmm. Yes, you'd like a peanut butter sandwich. Like he's trying to figure out the pantomime and the things that are going on. The sea elf seemed confused but nodded and then quickly swam away. Gipper feared the elf misunderstood and again sat down to await his fate. As Arab supplies begin to run low, he of course prayed to the gods for assistance, even the god of the ocean, who's technically an evil god, but you know, that's how that is. Um, He also prayed more than anything else that his family and friends would not suffer with his loss, with him dying. And that's the thing. Gnomes are usually prepared for other gnomes to die from failed mechanical experiences. That's just how that works. Suddenly, the crab lurched and began to move just a small bit. Weakly, he made his way to his window. There, he saw the sea elf who had wrapped some kind of ropes to his crab. 
The ropes were being pulled by two giant seahorses. Gipper appreciated the help, but knew there was no way they would make it to the shore in time. Weak from air loss, he fell to the ground. Passing in and out as air was beginning to be completely gone, he was awoken by a loud banging on the hull. His vision was fuzzy, and he was confused. Lack of air, nearly nothing left. Barely able to draw breath, he managed to pull the lever that opened the hatch on the roof. Air came rushing in, not the water he expected. He coughed as he tried to take it all in. A strong pair of hands wrapped around him, and he passed out again. Gipper awoke sometime later to find himself lying on a sandy beach inside of some kind of cave or grotto. Two-thirds of the large area was water, and the other third was dry sand and rock. Where'd I get the dice lamp on the shelf? Oh, the t that's a D20 dice, yes. I got that at uh, Books A Million, but it is available on Amazon. I want to say it's about 30 or $40. Totally worth it. Beautiful lamp. Uh, where was I? Yes. Okay, one-third was dry sand or rock. A green moss or mold grew on the cave's walls and ceiling that glowed and gave off enough light to see the area. Partially sticking out of the water was his, uh, his uh, crab submersible. Sitting just on the edge of the water was the sea elf. The sea elf's name was Tethys, and he knew a very limited amount of the common tongue. Tethys explained that he was from the undersea elven city of Delvia. He was a noble by birth and very curious, and asked Gipper about the surface and his crab and all sorts of questions. Gipper was in one of the several un undersea grottos several miles from the elven city of Delvia. The gnome was just as curious about the elves in their world. The two quickly became friends, and Gipper made the grotto his new home. With supplies from Tethys, he was able to repair his crab, and the two began exploring the area together. Tethys received permission to allow Gipper to enter the city, as long as he was escorted. Gipper lived undersea for eight years, near and with the sea elves, before the merge happened. Like everyone else, Delvia was affected. Large amounts of their land was not brought through to the New World. But Delvia was a huge elven kingdom, the largest elven kingdom on their world. So even with a large chunk of their land missing, it's still a pretty massive city. Uh, and it's now not quite as deep as it used to be, which they're not a fan of that. Um, but they continue to live their lives, of course, like anyone else. They started looking... How recently was the merge? Uh, the merge at this point was nine years ago? The merge is where this story started. That's where the Fire Moon story switched over to these heroes. It was six months after the merge. That's when these guys' story began. So, like I said, Seraph is close, has got to be around five or six years old at this point, if not seven. Um, and they had ventured for several years before he was born. So it's probably close to a decade at this point. Good question. Good question. Uh, yes. So, you know, they're now having to explore, just like everybody else is, they're exploring the ocean around them. And they start looking around and they find the islands that Darsh starts to be building up on after a while, and they see, they can find where the other, they stay away from, and we're careful not to let everybody else know that they're there, but fortunately their kingdom's far enough uh, from the shore, and there's no islands on the other side that they were able to, you know, within range that they cared about, that the elves felt pretty secure where they were. 
Okay. Uh, Jess says, T totally, I'm definitely going to be telling people about you. Anyone else DMD would love this, like a live interaction? I appreciate that. That's the goal. I actually, I have this on Spotify and iTunes as well. Uh, I put it up usually a couple days later. So if you have anybody who might would rather listen to it audibly, it is available as an audio podcast. Uh, free, of course. It's up there. Love it if you give it a follow, a subscribe, a like, or whatever it is on the podcasting of your choice. Um, another cool thing, Jesse, if you're not sure, this is for anyone else listening. If you go to my website, onlydraven.com, at the top there's a bunch of tabs. If you click on the one that says characters, I've gone on Hero Forge's website and I've painted and made and screenshotted minis for all their characters, their minions, the gods, major characters that popped up. So if you'd like to see what some of the people I'm talking about look like, that'd be a great place to look. I always direct people there so you can see what Darsh, Dandy, Mercy, and Artemis uh, look like, right, at different phases of their adventure. Uh, Gipper and Nyla, I don't have one yet to put up because I try not to put up ones before we get there. You know, I don't want to give away with something. So if you'd like to see what some of these folks look like, uh, they're there. I'm particularly proud of Darsh's. <laughs> Darsh's one of my favorites. Uh, so let's see here. So after doing this searching and looking around and stuff of that nature, and I appreciate the shout out. If you have people love to send this way, I'd love that. I this is my passion project, and I would love to be able to share it with more people. Thank you. Um, it was soon after the merge, after a year or two in, well, three years, it was three years after the merge, yes, that they ran into trouble. At that point, they stayed away from everyone. They kept their undersea secret. Ships occasionally will go above them, it's the border of their areas. You know, Darsh was in that area looking to see if there was anything of value. The elves watched, but after a while, he stopped coming around. Same with the other elves. But then, trouble popped up. Several other citizens on the outskirts of their kingdom were attacked by large groups of sharks. And it's not that they were attacked by sharks. That in itself can happen. Although most sea life are smart enough to stay away from sea elves. Many of them are befriended. Or, um, oh, what's the word I'm thinking of? Uh, when you get a dog and you get it trained so it lives with you say habitated, but that's not the word. Uh, domesticated. Haha. <laughs> they domesticated like the seahorses and big manta rays. They lived with them. They're allies. They're talking to the fish and stuff like that. Um, but large groups of sharks attacking them, a little uncommon. More importantly, though, the sharks seem to be working together in an unnatural way. Well, this is not going to tolerate Okay, So, the king sent out his general and the army to deal with these sharks. Supposedly, there were 10 or 11 large sharks that seemed to be working together at this point. But what is that against the army of the sea elves, which is in the thousands? So, they made their way out. The garrison tracked the sharks to a great reef, out, well outside the land they normally travel. To their surprise, they found that the sharks were under the control of a community of where sharks? Where sharks? There sharks. Yes, where sharks. How many of you woke up today and thought you were going to hear about where sharks on Merge Worlds today? Right? I'll tell you who didn't. These characters that I'm playing D&D with. Where sharks never crossed their mind. The leader of these where sharks was a massive brute named Duran. He laughed at the elves, completely unafraid of them, drastically outnumbered. The elves attacked Durin and his kin, but Durin 
somehow summoned a giant sea creature, more massive than anything the elves have ever seen, dwarfing a sea dragon. Thank you very much. Oh, that's a It's Just Blitz followed us on Twitch. Excellent. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Um, uh, so yes, a creature massive in size, unlike anything they've ever seen. The size of a city itself. This Well, small city. A town. Big creature. Summoned by the were-sharks, attacked and slaughtered hundreds, if not thousands, of the sea elves. Yes, most of the attack. Those who survived fled and were allowed to to tell the tale of what had happened. Two days later, one of the were sharks, an emissary of Duron, came to the city of Delvia and advised the king that if he did not meet their demands, the beast would be sent to destroy their kingdom. They demanded food, treasure, and 20 elven maidens per year. These guys are turds. I'll point that out. Were turds, more accurate. The king denied them and cast them out. Of course, the king hadn't seen that creature. I will not provide you wealth and supplies, and especially my citizens, just because you threaten us. Get off of my land. Get get off my yard, basically. Get off my lawn. And he kicked. I almost thought about killing him. It's not about killing him, but he's like, no, you go back and you tell them. I understand the other thing that took out some of my people, but this is the whole kingdom. There's a lot more of us here. The next day, the beast attacked. The elves found they were powerless against it. One of their smaller cities was completely destroyed, and over a thousand lives were lost, including women and children. The elven king had no choice but to concede against the terms of the were-shark. And every year, for the last several years, he has had to sacrifice goods, foods, and some of his citizens to the were-sharks. Well, if that just wasn't bad enough. This year, Duron made a specific demand. In addition, the king must also send his own lovely only daughter. Again, the king had no choice but to put the needs of his people first and had to agree. Now, it was well known that Tethys, that's Gipper's friend, was courting Princess Nylalanya. Nyla. He argued with the king but was denied. In a radical attempt to save her, Tethys attempted to steal her away and flee the kingdom. The king had foreseen such action and Tethys was captured and imprisoned. And you, you understand, he liked the boy. He enjoyed, he was, he was dating his daughter. This is a good young noble lad. But he, he's, he's got to do what's right for everybody, right? He's got tens of thousands of elves he's got to look after. Gipper was beside himself in anger and despair. He knew he could never free his friend from the castle dungeons, but he also could not allow his best friend's love to be lost. Gipper managed to break into the castle and get away with the princess, because nobody expected that. They fled as fast as they could until his crab was attacked by a giant eel. They managed to escape, but his crab was badly damaged. Together, the two of them swam to a nearby large island. It seemed to be populated, very much so, and they hoped they might be able to find a boat 
to complete their escape, where they ran into a large minotaur. So this is the story of Gipper and Nyla. So for all the Gipper knows, Tethys is still in prison, right? He's trying to get Tethys' love away. He's like, it's the, it's the only thing I can do is try to save her from all this. And I understand big creature kill lots of elves, but Tethys is his best friend in the world. There's no way he can let Nyla be taken back. So our heroes have to listen to this story. It's believable. <laughs> Nyla seems to be, yeah, that's, that's what he said. Totally true. Um, so now they're stuck with a situation. What do we do? Do we turn them over? Save all the kingdoms we're allied with? Pacify the elves and maybe even befriend them at this point? That's one option. Or we could try to kick some shark booty. I think you know which way my characters chose to go. I say my characters, but they're played by someone else. But you know what? Once again, I want to point out, I had a storyline ready, regardless of which direction they went. I had complete faith they were going to try to take on the were-sharks. But, sometimes I get surprised, and as a DM, you have to be ready. I had a complete storyline campaign if they did in fact decide to turn them over. That never saw the light of day. I have, I have four or five campaigns, adventures that they never played because they were there in case they chose something else. Ugh. So they return to Arduel. Back to their ship. It takes a few days to get back there. And they talk to King Christopher, and Christopher's like, well, Darsh, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to trust you in this situation. If what the gnome is saying is true, King Christopher's a really nice dude. He's like, I can't, I can't say turning her over to them <clears throat> just to be given to a group of uh, <laughs> male were-sharks. <clears throat> Turds. I can't have that. I, I, I couldn't be a party of that. I'm willing to back you up. If this means we have to go against wars and COs, I, I, I back you up whatever you choose, Darsh. You, my navy is at your disposal. <clears throat> <It was, clears throat> and I'm sure that many of the other southern kingdoms will as well. Darsh comes from a minotaur kingdom. Well, you know, the minotaur king, Cronear. Cronear, they do not let that happen. There's no way a Cronear minotaur is going to hand over anybody. And since the women are just as good warriors as the men and are treated completely equal, there's no way they're going to tolerate that crap. So Darsh is like, yeah, I'm sure I could call on everybody else, but at the same time, that's a lot of people that could be put in harm's way on both sides. When really, as much as I hate to say it, the Sea Elf King is doing... He's trying to save his people. He's not probably doing it the best way. What can we do to help? And he's talking over this with Christopher's on his boat. He's come down to the shore and he's talking with this and his crew. When Morik, the sea mage, speaks up. Darsh. And he does not look happy to say whatever it is he's going to say. I believe I know someone that could help you. Darsh and Christopher and the whole crew are sitting there like, Really? Interesting. Who's this? And Mark says, Far to the east is a place known as the Boneyard Reef. 
Darsh has heard of it. He's never really gone that far out, well outside of his waters, but he's heard tale of it. Within it lives a sea witch named Kadira. Mark says that Kadira is a very ancient, very powerful, I'm not going to lie to you, Darsh, very evil individual. She is not a good person. But she's also an oracle. If anyone knows about the were sharks and the sea monster, it would be she. Now, I would not normally send you into a situation, but what we're talking about is trying to stop a war amongst many kingdoms where everyone seems to be on the right side, one way or another. And I can't say that I recommend this, but I would not be doing my job as your smage, your friend, if I didn't mention. Oh, thank you, Jesse. I appreciate that. You missed all the introduction of the were sharks. <laughs> Anyways, you may want to watch that part back. So, they say, she might be willing to help you, but I'm sure that whatever she offers, she's going to require a very high price. Darsh is like, I see, I see. Well, you really think that she would know information? He goes, she knows all about the ocean. Even this, on this new world, she knows more about what happens under the water than any creature I've ever come across. Darsh can tell that there's a history there. Something's going on. It will be on Spotify soon. I usually have it up within just a couple of days. And the video version of this is available immediately. Normally within an hour or so. So people can always go back. I leave all the video episodes up there as well. So they're all on the channel under Emerge Worlds Playlist. And I link them all on my website. There's a page for that too. In case anybody out there needs to listen to it. Um, but uh, this very evil sea witch. If anybody knows it, it'll be her. And you can again, you can tell that there's history there. Morik has obviously dealt with this person before. Morik's like in his 40s, early to early to mid 40s. So he's not like a young young dude. He's experienced. You did miss you. You missed a chunk there. That's okay though. I think you'll like it when you go back in here. Um. So they're talking there, and, and King Christopher's like, "Well, if, are you going to go talk to her?" And they're like, "Well, we think we might. I mean, if he thinks that's the best idea." Christopher's like, well, let's let's go talk to the Mage Tower. There's a Mage Tower here in Arduel now. Let's go talk to the Mages here and see what they think. So Christopher escorts them to the Mage Tower of Arduel, and he's like, hey, we need to talk to the head of the thing. And of course, this is the king. They're like, yeah, well, come on in. We'll make it happen. So they are taken to a room, and they're not left to wait long. Um, the head of the tower is a gentleman named Dominius. Uh, Dominius is a neutral wizard, and he looks like he's probably in his early to mid-60s. He has a relatively long beard, but he's completely bald on top. Got a little wisps on this. Got the Picard going on, a little bit of wisps around the side there. Um, but he he's sitting in, and they tell him the whole story of everything that's going on. Now, he'd already heard about the sea elf situation. and I mean, about the war part, but now he's hearing about Gipper and Nyla and about this oracle, and Dominius is like, I'm not familiar with this oracle. I've never heard of her. Oh, I remember now. The other sea mage is named Nona. Nona is the female smage on the ship. Mork is the main one. So, Mork and... Yes, Nona is, is, is Darsh's other one. So, Mork and Nona are here. And he's like, okay, well... Um, 
what is it we can do to help? And they're like, well, we're about to go in the ocean. What have you got that can help? You know? And the mage is like, well, we we don't really... I can't think of anything off the top of my head. I'm sure I got some potions of water breathing and this and that. And Kring Christopher, who at this point is still like in his early 30s. He's the same age, if not younger, than most of our characters. Uh, steps up and he's like, he's like, I'm sure you have something else that can help. And the mage kind of looks at him interestingly. He's like, my king? He's like, he's like, and his king gets almost right up in his face. He's like, you asked to build your tower here. And I allowed it. Even though, remember, you've got to remember, an evil wizard took over his kingdom, locked him in prison, killed his family, and took over. Darsh and them saved him. He goes, you know my history, and I've allowed it. I gave land, I gave everything, and I've never asked for anything. I want you to help these people. And Mark, and, 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 and Dominus looks at him and goes, all right. I'll see that they're helped with every way we can. I appreciate that. Darsh, I wish you the best. I have to go tell my Navy and be prepared for stuff and so on. King Christopher leaves. It was King Christopher really pulling out pulling out the sack and being like, listen, you're going to do this. You're going to find a way. The Brotherhood of Magic is their own organization. They're in multiple... Mercy has one in Serenity, their home. But still, they're there on land usually given and allowed there by the king or city council or whatever it is of the place they are. Thought about hosting Dungeons and Dragons online on PC. Uh, from time to time, yes. I'm currently running a new live group uh, every other Thursday. That's a completely different storyline from this, but is still on Merged Wars. So I've thought about it, yes. So Dominius says, give me, give me, uh, just look, if you stay with you. I'll have food and drink brought in. I know you're probably hungry. The sea elf is here. We'll bring you something to eat. Give me just a little bit of time. Let me see what I can do. When he comes back, he has a small box. Uh, it's a mini chest, right? A little chest, a little pirate chest kind of thing. And he sets it on the table. He goes, I have several potions of water breathing I can give you. And he has, like, then other things brought in. There's some other mages come in with a good little container full of probably 10 or 12 magic potions. None healing. That's Cleric's job. Oh, hello, Patches. Thanks for coming on by and visiting. <laughs> but uh, <clears throat> here's some potions. We've got that. We've got some little things. But this is what I think is going to be most beneficial. And he opens it up, and inside are 10 what look like metal rings. Now, Darsh and Mercy looks at these and immediately have flashbacks to their time when they were in the gladiatorial arena in uh, uh, Oramon. They look like the same neck things that were around their necks. You know, the slave-looking thing. And, of course, he says that's what they are. They're chokers. You put them on, they'll adjust to whatever size. It doesn't matter whether you're a kender or a minotaur. They'll fit you. There are ten of them. And they will let you breathe underwater. Give you underwater, limited infravision, 60 feet. Except for Mercy, you can see everything anyways. And free action. Now, he stresses, these are on loan. I'm not giving you these. I'm letting you use these. They were created by the same wizard. There are only 12 of them, and we found 10. And no one's found the way to reproduce these yet. So because the king has asked it, we're going to loan these to you. But if you lose one, you're going to have to replace it with something just as important or magical or powerful. And they're like, uh, okay. All right, well, that's 10 of them. Okay, that's us four and some of our minions. Because they have some minions, of course. Wait a minute. 
I'm sorry, it was eight of them. There are ten of them in the set, and they have eight of them. There are eight of them. I said the wrong number. I apologize. Eight of them is how many they have. Target Messenger. Oh, <laughs> I appreciate that, Jesse. Currently, with everything going on in streaming in the channel, I probably don't have time to write and run a whole third story right now. Uh, but in the future, it's definitely something I'd like to do. Uh, some live online, maybe even streaming it. I'm not sure yet. Uh, it's definitely something I'm going to look into eventually. For sure. I appreciate the desire, though. That's awfully flattering. Um, so they said, okay, we'll give you these things. Now they say they don't know anything about the creature, and they don't know anything about uh, these sea elves specifically, and they don't... They say, we'll say that where sharks are particularly strong of the, of the lycanthropes, only magical weapons can hurt them, and they are one of the few that are immune to silver. Hmm. Mm, most lycanthropes are affected by silver. Were sharks surprisingly not? Now, before they leave, Dominius also wants a private moment with the Smages, Nona and Morak, and they get that. Um, and they're like, okay, well, we can deal with that, sure. They have a little meeting of what's going on, and then they come back out, and they're like, yeah, everything's fine. He's giving us how to use them and some other stuff. And Darsh is like, excellent. We'll go, we will make... We're going to have to go down, we're going to have to get some supplies... Let's go see this sea witch. By the time they get down to the ships, there's already a commotion going on. A ship traveling from Paxwell to Arduel had been attacked by the sea elves the day before. The ship was able to fight them off, but it barely limped into Arduel's shores within the last hour. Uh, several people had died. They said they probably killed a couple sea elves too, but the first blood had been spilt, if you will. They also find out that the water elementals have been seen several places up on the shore. They've been sent out by the elves to try to find Nyla and Gipper. So the sea elves are the ones that are controlling the water elementals, and they've been basically set out to find them. So they need to stock up on supplies. They need to get out of here. right? So right off the bat, they're like, okay, we're going to go back to Darstopia, because it's basically on the way, and we're going to restock from supplies there. Mostly because Darsh has a, a specific dock built for his ship. His ship is very specially designed, if you remember. The Chimera, which is called that way not because it has three heads, but because it's part human, part elven, and part minotaur design. They came together to create their own design of ship. Very important, very cool. We talked about it previously. Um, he's, he's got all the supplies he needs there. So they're going to head back to Darstopia. Now, on the way, they never have any real issues. Um, they didn't get attacked by any sea elves or anything. Again, the Chimera, one of the biggest ships on the ocean, probably the last one to get attacked. When they make it back to Darstopia, it takes a few days, even for the Chimera, they get there, um, they find out that Darstopia has been attacked several times by water elementals. There's been no major damage, only some minor things. There have been some injuries, no one's died. But those water elementals appear to be at least coming on land part ways, they can't go far from the ocean, to try to maybe search it further or, or pressure Darsh into doing what the elves want. Now, based on what they learned from Morak, it's probably going to take three weeks at full sail to reach the reef. That's a good distance. That's, and that's going chimera speed. It's Other than the elven ships, it's probably one of the fastest ships on the water. So, that's a lot. That's a lot of time. 
Who knows how many other ships will be attacked or kingdoms or lives could be lost in the meantime. This is not going to be just a short jaunt over to another island. Also, they check in. There were no other sightings of the man in the hat. No more signs of him anywhere on the island. No unknown ships have come by or left. So there's nothing at this point that would imply where he went to either. So it does take them a couple of days to get everything stocked for the trip. Three weeks, that's a lot. They do go down to the mirror and they do talk with Serenity. Uh, Serenity, for the record, is the kingdom what Mercy is the queen of. Uh, Artemis has a temple there. Dandy lives there as well. So, while you can only go through it once every 30 days, you can use it as a communication device anytime you want. And Ulrich, Mercy's husband and king of Serenity, has had someone, basically, some one of the few trusted people who know about the magic mirror, in her hidden room, because it's in her treasure room, um, <clears throat> keeping an eye on it in case a message comes through at any time. So they've been taking shifts. Draven, Michael, Ulrich himself, any of Mercy's knights. She's got her knights of her round table kind of thing. Her knights... Um, all know about this place. They've traveled through it multiple times. <coughs> Excuse me. But they stock up on supplies over that time period, let Darcy's wife know what's going on, what's happening, and what's been going on. Tell the true story, what's happening with Nyla and Gipper, and what they're intending to do. Their spouses are always like, hey, we hate it when you go adventuring without us. Be safe. You know, that's what you gotta do. Sometimes when you're the leader of a kingdom or something, someone's gotta stay home and take care of the family. And that's these three dudes, they're back at home taking care of the kids. So they stock up on supplies, and they begin to head out. Now, as I mentioned, the Boneyard Reef, three weeks away. So that's a long trip. And as you can imagine, <laughs> the trip has to be slightly eventful, right? Because, I mean, yeah, you, you don't think I'm going to make it just a three-week trip when nothing happens, right? That would just be too boring. So there's a creature called a shark squid. Volume 4 of the 2nd Edition Player's Hand, uh, Players Monster Manual Appendix, Volume 4. The shark squid is exactly what it sounds like. Front half is a big shark. Back half is a big squid. And it is large. The ship is attacked by a shark squid. Shark squid itself is, is, is got big enough size that even the chimera might look tasty. And so they are stuck fighting one of this. This is about a week into their trip. By this point, they're well outside the waters they normally travel. Darsh has been through here before. They've looked around to make sure there's no threats. But they don't go this far in the ocean because there's nothing out here. So they rarely come out there after the exploration. But they do have to fight this shark squid. The shark squid appears to not be under like any type of control. They can't tell for sure. But I can tell you the shark squid is a random encounter. It is not controlled by the were sharks. It is purely coincidental. Now I've talked about this before. But I like to touch on it for new folks that may not have been here before. When I create an adventure, I have an idea for the overall storyline. I'm like, this is a beat. This is a beat. This is a beat. This is what they're going to do at the end. And then I go to my large collection of monster manuals. These are all second edition, because I play second edition mostly. All the DMGs, all the appendixes. I've got about 10 or 12 different books full of monsters and creatures, including a bunch of the old second edition binders down here, where they used to come in binder pages. And I find creatures that are adventure-specific, right? Water creatures. If they're going into a temple that hasn't been opened in a thousand years, 
undead creatures, because what would living creatures been eating that whole time? So finding creatures that fit the story arc, something important to me. And I'd never had them fight a shark squid before, and I thought that would be fun. So the shark squid uh, is, is, is a weird combo because it has a huge bite attack. It also has a very, very hard skin. So it will ram a ship attempting to do damage or sink it. Uh, and it tries that with the chimera, but the chimera is just a little bit too strong for that. So then it tries using tentacles and such, uh, but it actually like back in. It, it's not like uh, the tentacles come around the front end and this is its face. It's not like that. The back end is the tentacles and they're used more for propulsion or grabbing things that can pull it up to their mouth. But a lot of times when the tentacles are wrapping around the ship, it's facing the opposite direction. You know, I want to, I'm going to stress that, right? Um, but it's trying chewing on the ship. Once again, Darsh uh, uses uh, his ring of water walking to foolishly jump into the water. On the water, I should say. He doesn't jump in. He climbs down. But he goes charging across the ocean and attacking the shark that's trying to sh sink his ship. Now, Nathalian, as we know, is a dead eye. Nathalian's his elven, the elven prince who also works for him as his lookout and navigator. And he's a dead eye with a bow, so he's shooting at the shark. All right, we've got the two sea mages. We got everybody up there with ballista. The ship's got a bunch of stuff. So they're pumping off a bunch of damage. Uh, Mercy, there's not much she can do. She starts grabbing things like javelins and helping with the big ballista and shooting. Uh, Dandy, does, her, her only ranged weapons are daggers which are very good daggers, and you don't want to just go throwing those at the ocean. You're not going to get those back. And Artemis is trying to heal people and best she can, because the shark is hitting people and breaking things on the ship. Uh, it took, uh, it took what, take about seven or eight rounds, I believe, if I remember correctly, to defeat the shark squid. Um, it helped a lot that Darsh did climb down there, because he starts pulling some of the aggro off the ship. Um, and then, of course, the downside of that is he successfully pulled the aggro off the ship, because he's the new aggro. So now he's fighting this huge, like, 24-foot shark squid or something. Um, and it's trying to eat him a lot, because he looks very tasty. He's a minotaur. He's very, very tasty. He's very large, too. There's a lot of meat there. So they're being attacked. Um, the ballista ended up being really the key thing here. <clears throat> Mercy was firing the ballista while several of the minotaur crew were loading it. Um, she's strong, but she's also little. She's 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 up there. She's like ah, she's firing things. I want to say someone made a high a bunk reference. For those of you who've been here since the early days, you know how do you remember how many rounds it took? Um, I it's it's just mostly memory. A lot of the fights I don't. Some of them do because sometimes they beat things faster than I thought they would. So that usually sticks in my mind. This thing was supposed to take longer than eight rounds. It was like seven or eight rounds because it has an attack it can do every third or fourth round as well. And I only got to use that twice. And they killed it before I got to use it again. That's how I remember stuff like that. And I'm like, ah, that had a cool ability. I didn't get to use it on them as much as I'd like. But at the same time, kudos to them for doing a very good job. Uh, but again, a lot of it, remember, a lot of this, I've told this story multiple times to groups and friends I know in person. Uh, so... It's fresh in my mind a lot. And sometimes I have it written down here on my pages as well. Because I have a lot of notes. <clears throat> so my pages are very, very detailed. <coughs> and here in the binder, I'll give you another example. Just this is it. So I keep a binder pages as well. And for the binder pages... Oh, there's the Christmas episode. I forgot about that. 
I usually do this. <clears throat> this is from a previous adventure. But, uh, let me see if I can see here. I will create sheets ahead of time with the basic stats that I need. And then I'll have numbers for the hit points. So in this situation, there were 16 of the uh, Desert Valley Black Sand. The Black Sand were those uh, 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 guys that were attacking them in the Valley of, of the Scorpions when they were off to get the Bone Lance in a previous episode. So I'll have their basic stats. And I'll also very often, I didn't do it on this one, but a lot of times I'll write down what page and book I pulled it out of so I can just pull out that book off my shelf and reference it. Because we only ever play at my house. So a lot of times I can look and I say, okay, well, there are they did damage five times. The battle lasted five rounds. So mm, things like that are ways that I keep track of a lot of stuff. But they were able to successfully do it. It was like seven or eight rounds, and I never got to use some of his abilities. Because he does have, even, as a, even though he's a squid and a shark, he had an octopus ink thing. It was a very weird amalgamation of sea creatures. That's why I was so excited to use it. Because uh, its attacks were just so unconventional together. Big shark jaws and a tentacle attack. I just thought it was very cool. Um, so we used that, but they were successful in taking it. Near the end, Darsh did get knocked over. And as I've discussed before, with a ring of water walking, if you fall in the water, you can't climb out. Your hands aren't walking on the water. Your feet are. So you have to get on land and step back on the water for that to work. Uh, so he was in the water chopping at the end there. And when it did sink... Uh, he got out of the water fast because, you know, that's a lot of blood. And there are other sharks, like regular sharks. Uh, but they were able to successfully take out the shark squid uh, without any deaths. They did have a few injuries. Artemis was able to heal those. Um, even uh, even uh, Nyla was like, I've never seen anything like that around these waters either. Which caused them a little bit because she's the sea elf. I should point that out. I've never seen a creature like that anywhere near our waters because they're not from the world that she's from, which makes her worried that perhaps the were-sharks are starting to draw in more creatures to control, which makes them an even bigger threat, which at the same time concerns our heroes as well. Because if the were-sharks are bringing in more things, what else might they face as they move forward? But we won't find that out until next week, because it's 10.30... And I stream until 10.30. That's a good stopping point for today. Uh, the next episode, we will move into uh, talking to the uh, Sea Witch, the Oracle, and uh, see what information she might be able to shed uh, to help them on their adventure and what price she may ask to receive it. So... Uh, yeah, this was a, a. Hopefully, you guys are slightly interested in the storyline. Um, we haven't had a lot of ocean battle stuff, and for the last several campaign storylines we've been running with these guys, it's all been very Serenity based. Um, so I was very excited to finally put something, if you will, in Darsh's waters. That's a dad joke, but I did that. Uh, do something down in the Darsh area um, where they get to help him for once. Uh, so I was excited to kind of make that a little bit different. Um, and again, this is the last storyline that they actually played through. Once we finally finish this, I'll be giving you guys all the new material I've been writing that is it's been in my head for years and I've never got to play. So you'll get to see where the story goes from this point. Uh, but I really do appreciate all of you who came by once again and gave me the opportunity to tell my story. It is my favorite thing that I get to do in all of this. Uh, and I'm always trying to 
get it in front of more people's eyes and ears. So thank you all for giving me that opportunity to share this with you. Um, I'll be back here again next Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, usually till 1030 is when we run there. Um, I am most, most of my live streaming has now moved to Twitch. Um, so other than this and some of the members only streams uh, on YouTube, those will still be here. But the majority of my streaming is now over on my Twitch, only Draven Gaming. That's all one word, no spaces, no underscores. Uh, if you got a Twitch account, swing by, give me a underscore, or give me an underscore. Give me a follow, hang on out with us. Even when I'm streaming Minecraft and other games, I'm always happy to talk about D&D stuff if you've got questions. It's always a lot of fun. You can also, of course, go to my Discord channel by going to my website, onlydraven.com, and there on the first page, you'll find a link that'll take you right into our Discord. We'd love to have you. It's open to everyone. While you're there, you'll find links to all my social media accounts. Uh, there's a Merged Worlds Instagram account that I post the pictures of the minis there as well and some of the art that we've had made over the years for Merge Worlds. Um, while you're there, you'll also find stuff like my streaming schedule, links to the audio podcasts on iTunes and Spotify, the characters tab I talked about where you can see all the minis for all the characters that have been painted, um, and the ODG store where you can get even some Merge Worlds merch. I'm wearing a Merge Worlds shirt today, actually. Uh, so there's all of that stuff. Uh, but I'm going to call that a day. Thank you all so much for coming by. I really do appreciate the time you shared with me. Uh, as always, a very special thank you to the members of my membership program, so my subscribers on Twitch, and all of the wonderful people who've been tipping and donating. All of that stuff has helped this channel grow to the point that I'm able to share all this on a regular basis. So thank you all very much for my support. And an extra special thank you to all my moderators who all do a whole lot of work that is very much appreciated. All right? Excellent, Jesse. Well, I hope you hear it. If you get a chance, uh, you might check out some of the older ones. Let me know what you think. Was oh, that your time, 7.30? All right, well, cool. We will hopefully see you then, all right? All right, guys, I'm going to sign off. Have yourselves a wonderful evening, and I'll be back tomorrow night at 9.30 p.m. Eastern on Twitch for some more Minecraft. You guys have yourselves a wonderful day.